In the year 1894 BC, a relatively unknown Amorite chieftain named Sumu'abim established a small kingdom along what was then the eastern banks of the Euphrates River. There was nothing really special about this area other than that it possessed some decent farmland and a small city that in the local Akkadian language was called Babylu, which one translation reads as Gateway of the Gods. Scholars believe that the original name may have been Babur or Babir, which simply means pale, white, or bright in the old Sumerian language. Most of us today know the city by the name Babylon. Babylon had once been a regional administrative center during the reigns of the great kings of the Neo-Sumerian Empire, who ruled from the city of Ur towards the end of the 3rd millennium BC. Scholars today refer to this group of kings as the Third Dynasty of Ur, since there are only two other known dynasties from Ur that preceded it. These kings, of which there were five, ruled over a relatively enlightened society where the arts and literature were promoted in the old Sumerian language, laws were enacted by the rulers for the benefit of most of the population, and international trade flourished as far as India and Egypt. Controlling a network of territories and tributaries that extended from the eastern Mediterranean Sea all the way to central Iran, at its height, the Neo-Sumerian Empire was the most powerful and wealthiest state ever to have existed in early antiquity. By the time that Sumu'abam and his followers settled into their new home along the Euphrates River, the Neo-Sumerian Empire had been long gone. In its place was a patchwork of petty states, whose rulers may have called themselves kings, but who in reality were little more than warlords who raided each other's territories for silver, slaves, and women. Sumuabam, though, seems to have wanted more. A legacy. Over time, and with the improvements and investments made by himself and his early successors, Babylon would grow into a sizable city known for its fine, colorful textiles. However, in the centuries that followed, the city would become the focal point of the land that would eventually bear its name, Babylonia. This is the story of a great civilization that revolved around a city and its patron deity, Marduk. It's a story of progress, destruction, glory, great kings, and their noble and often nefarious deeds. And of course, of the people who lived in this marvelous land. A place that has captured the imagination of mankind from ancient times until the modern day. It's the story of Babylon, the city once at the center of the world. For just over a century, the kings of the Third Dynasty of Ur, who presided over a superstate that scholars today call the Neo-Sumerian Empire, 
had ushered in an era of prosperity and cultural achievement that the already ancient civilizations of Mesopotamia, up until then, had never experienced. They had brought the Sumerian language back to the forefront of daily life after nearly 150 years of Akkadian-dominated rule. Many of the great buildings of the city of Ur were renovated and expanded, such as the ziggurat dedicated to the city's patron deity, the moon god, Nana, which towered above the desert and, as far as we know, was probably the greatest religious structure of its day. But like with the Akkadian Empire a few centuries before it, the Neo-Sumerian Empire of the Third Dynasty of Ur was not destined to last. There were likely several causes for its collapse, but one of the main reasons that scholars cite for the demise of the Neo-Sumerian state had to do with the eastward expansion of nomads called Amorites into southern and central Mesopotamia. Their arrival, along with bad harvests, famine in certain areas, and weak leadership overall were all factors that led to the fall of the Empire of Ur. One instance of just how dire the situation had become during the final decades of the Neo-Sumerian state can be demonstrated in letters between its last king, Ibisin, and one of his commanders, Ishbi-era. Ibisin had ordered Ishbi-era to buy a large quantity of grain from the cities of Isin and Kazalu and bring it to the capital city of Ur. However, Ishbi-era responds that he's unable to carry out the king's orders because Amorites have been ravaging the country and blocked all of the roads to Ur. One of his letters to the king reads, Say to Ibisin, my lord, this is what Ishbi-era, your servant, says. You ordered me to travel to Isin and Kazalu to purchase grain. With grain reaching the exchange rate, of one shekel of silver per gur. Twenty talents of silver have been invested for the purchase of grain. I heard news that the hostile Amorites have entered inside your territories. I entered with 72,000 gur of grain, the entire amount of grain, inside Isin. Because of the Amorites, I am unable to hand over this grain for threshing. They are stronger than me, while I am condemned to sitting around. Not only were bands of Amorites blocking the roads and making travel between cities dangerous, but many of them also seemed to have been preparing to attack Nippur and Isin. While this may or may not have been true, Ishbiera took advantage of the situation around these two cities to further his own political ambitions. In another letter, he informs the king that due to the Amorite threat, he should formally be made the new Ensi, or governor, of both cities. In reality, Ibisin lacked the authority in that region to deny Ishbiera's request, and so he agreed to make Ishbiera a regional governor with jurisdiction over Nippur and Isin. Time, though, was running out, and the situation outside city walls was growing more precarious by the day. To help speed up the delivery of the grain, Ibisin ordered Ishbiera to team up with the other governors and commanders of the nearby cities that were still loyal to him and 
to buy the grain at double the price if necessary. In this, Ishbiera was successful, and the grain ultimately reached the city of Ur. Though for the time being the food situation had been resolved, Ibisin's reliance on Ishbiera and other commanders must have shown them just how weak the king and his government really were. And so, in 2017 BC, Ishbiera took matters into his own hands and officially proclaimed himself to be the new king of Isin, the city that he had once pledged to protect for Ibisin. One of Ishbiera's first acts as the new king of Isin was to send messengers to the governors of neighboring cities demanding that they submit to him. One such messenger was sent to Puzur Numushta, the governor of Kazalu. We don't have the letter from Ishbiera to Puzur Numushta, but we have a letter from Puzur Numushta to Ibisin telling him of Ishbiera's treasonous acts, part of which reads To Ibisin, my liege. Thus says Puzur Numushta, governor of Kazalu your servant. The envoy of Ishbiera came to me and presented his case as follows. My liege Ishbiera has sent me to you with this message. My master, Enlil, has promised to make me shepherd of this land. I have sworn by the name of my personal god, Dagan, that I shall conquer Kazalu. Since Enlil has promised me the cities of the land, I shall build shrines to all the gods in Isin. I will celebrate their regular festivals. I shall set up my own statues, my own emblems, my own priestesses. And as for you, the one in whom you put your trust, Ibisin, I shall remove from this land. Isin's wall I shall rebuild and name it Idil. Pashunu. It was just as he said. Isin's wall he rebuilt and named it Idil Pashunu. He captured Nippur, appointed his own guard, and captured Nigdugani, the chief temple administrator of Nippur. His ally, Zimum, took the ruler of Subur prisoner and plundered Hamazi. Nur Ahum, governor of Eshnuna, Shuenlil, governor of Kish, and Puzur Tutu, governor of Borsippa, were returned to their original posts. The land trembles like a reed fence from his clamor. Ishbiera goes everywhere at the head of his troops. Ishbiera's clamor has become loud, and now he has cast his eyes in my direction. I have no ally, no one who could compete with him. Although he has not yet been able to defeat me, when he finally moves against me, I will have to flee. My liege must know about this. It's doubtful that Ibisin dispatched any troops to support Puzur Numushta of Kazalu, though we know that he did send letters to him berating Ishbiera, calling his former commander one who is not of Sumerian seed and making a prediction that the Elamites would eventually attack Isin and capture Ishbiera. Part of this letter may have been true, as Ishbiera was originally from the city of Mari, 
and may have been of Akkadian ancestry. The second part was also partially true. The Elamites would capture a king, but it would not be the new king of Essene. As the Neo-Sumerian Empire lost control of its vast array of territories, new political actors arose. One of these was the Elamite king and warlord, Kindatu. Kindatu's father, Yiberat, had been chosen by Shulgi, the second and greatest king of the third dynasty of Ur, to oversee, as his vassal, most of Elam from the city of Anshan. However, soon after Shulgi died, the state's grip on its most far-flung provinces began to wane, and after many years in the service of the Neo-Sumerian kings, Yiberat declared his independence from Ur and took the city of Susa. By the time that Kindatu had ascended the Elamite throne after his predecessor's death, the Neo-Sumerian state was on life support. Seizing the moment, in 2004 BC, Kindatu marched on Ur with a great army and sacked the city, taking both Ibisin and the statue of Ur's patron deity, Nana, with him. These actions officially brought about the end of the Third Dynasty of Ur and the Neo-Sumerian Empire. The fall of Ur was a watershed moment in the history of ancient Mesopotamia, most notably because it ushered in the gradual decline of the Sumerian language. This, though, didn't mean that it completely disappeared, but without widespread state sponsorship, its use in daily life dramatically decreased. Akkadian still remained the native and preferred language of most people, though with the influx of Amorites and other pastoral groups settling in and around the urban centers of Mesopotamia, new regional dialects emerged. The new society that was developing was essentially a combination of the older Sumerian-Akkadian culture with a bit of flavor from the more recent Amorite, Hurrian, and Kassite peoples who were slowly making their mark in southern and central Mesopotamia. We call this new society that began to emerge around 1900 BC Babylonian, and the land that it came to dominate, Babylonia, both named after the city of Babylon, which in time would become the cultural and religious center of this civilization, and, for many, the world. While linguistically and culturally there was some uniformity, politically, the land of Babylonia was extremely fractured. Alliances between competing strongmen shifted constantly, and cities often changed hands several times within the span of a generation. Most of the new leaders and warlords who arose out of the ashes of the Neo-Sumerian Empire were of Amorite and Akkadian lineage. During these chaotic times, two kingdoms eventually rose to prominence. One of these was centered around the city of Essene, while the other, the city of Larsa. Despite forming new, independent dynasties, most of the rulers of these and other small kingdoms tried to claim some sort of descent or legitimacy from the preceding Third Dynasty of Ur. 
These new kings, even the Amorite ones, saw themselves and their kingdoms as a continuation of the political, administrative, and cultural heritage of the Third Dynasty of Ur. For example, in the case of Ishbiera and his successors in Essene, Sumerian remained the language of all royal edicts, inscriptions, literature, and even hymns, the latter which had been clearly plagiarized from kings such as Shulgi. The fifth king of the dynasty of Essene, Lipit Ishtar, even compiled his law code in Sumerian. Though they may have fashioned themselves as being heirs to the Sumerian kings of old, the rulers of the Essene dynasty all had Akkadian throne names. Just eight years after the capture of the city by Kindatu, Ishbiera liberated Ur from its Elamite occupiers, and by the end of his reign, probably also controlled the cities of Uruk, Larsa, and Eridu in the south, along with Marad, Borsippa, Kazalu, and possibly as far as Eshnuna in the north. Such conquests, though, were short-lived. Amorite chieftains were also gaining ground in southern Mesopotamia, and by the reign of Idin Dagan, the dynasty of Essene's third king, clashes with them were becoming much more frequent. At one point, he lost control of the cities of Nippur and Uruk, but he quickly got them back after launching a counteroffensive. However, during the reign of Enlilbani from 1860 to 1837 BC, Nippur was lost for good to the new Amorite kings of Larsa. Like Essene, Larsa was a very old city established perhaps in the 4th or 5th millennium BC. By the year 1940 BC, Larsa was ruled by an Amorite warlord named Zabea, who claimed the title of Rabian Amurim, meaning Chief of the Amorites. His successor was a certain Gungunum, who ruled between 1932 to 1916 BC and captured the city of Ur during the seventh year of his reign. From that point onward, the fortunes of Larsa would rise at the expense of Essene. But Larsa was just one city. Between the years 1900 to 1800 BC, the cities of Kish, Uruk, and Sippar had become independent kingdoms with their own Amorite rulers. In 1894 BC, an Amorite chieftain named Sumuabim established a petty kingdom of his own along one of the eastern banks of the Euphrates River, with the small city of Babylon as its capital. Just a few kilometers to the east was Kish, one of the oldest and most respected cities in the history of ancient Mesopotamia. To the south of both was Borsippa, the city of the god, Nabu. There's no known text explaining just how Sumuabim acquired Babylon, but the most likely scenario is that he took over the city in much the same manner as other Amorite chieftains had in places such as Larsa, Uruk, and Ur by force. It's doubtful, though, that a small city such as Babylon would have put up much resistance. All that we know is that it was here that Sumuabim founded his kingdom and started a new line of kings, which we conveniently call the First Dynasty of Babylon. 
The documents we have, dating to Sumu Abum's reign, state that he spent a great deal of effort in building up Babylon's fortifications. This was important because like other Amorite rulers, Sumu Abum was constantly involved in turf wars with his neighbors. But he also used diplomacy and marriage alliances whenever possible. And soon, he and his successors were able to expand their territory and build small fortresses around Babylon. There were also matters of trade and disputes with neighboring kingdoms that had to be resolved. In one letter to his subordinates, the dynasty's fourth king, Apil Sin, complained that foreign trading caravans were acting as spies and needed to be reprimanded. Thus says Apil Sin, your lord. Is this good in your eyes, this way of acting, that caravans are regularly arriving here, and that they continuously get informers without receiving a fee, and that you are not objecting to this? Around the same time that Babylon was building itself up, the kingdom of Larsa to the southeast had expanded to become the most powerful state in Mesopotamia, and due to their control of the lucrative trade from the Gulf and Elam, also the wealthiest. In 1822 BC, a king named Rim-Sin came to power and began a major campaign to expand Larsa's borders even further, especially towards the north and the west. By 1810 BC, he had his sights on Uruk, which at the time was ruled by an Amorite king named Anam. Knowing that he couldn't repel an attack from Larsa alone, he wrote a letter to Babylon's fifth king, Sin Mubalit, asking him for support. The two were distantly related because one of the daughters of Babylon's second king, Sumulael, had married one of Anam's unnamed ancestors, who was a king of Uruk. In one of his letters to Sin Mubalit, Anam reminds the Babylonian king that Uruk and Babylon are one house and can speak openly. Sin Mubalat eventually did join Anam of Uruk and Damik Ilushu, the king of Isin, against Rimsin of Larsa. The details of the battle are unknown, but it's very clear that Rimsin was the victor. In one of his annals, he refers to his 14th year on the throne as the year the armies of Uruk, Isin, Babylon, Sutium, Rapikum, and the king of Uruk were smitten with weapons. Uruk was completely absorbed into the kingdom of Larsa, while Isin, though it survived, lost a significant amount of territory. There are no records indicating that Sin Mubalit suffered any significant losses, but as being part of the losing coalition against Larsa, he knew that Rim Sin would eventually come for Babylon. Thus, he spent the next 10 to 15 years building fortresses along his border in preparation for a future attack. In 1801 BC, the expected attack came, and though there are no specifics, Sin Mubalat's scribes record the final result as a Babylonian victory over Larsa. After that, we don't hear of a direct confrontation between the two for a while, but in 1793 BC, Rimsin conclusively defeated Damik Ilushu and annexed Isin into his growing kingdom, all but cementing his control over what had once been 
ancient Sumer. With the Gulf to the southeast, Elam directly east, and sparsely populated desert to the west and south, the only way for Larsa to expand was north, towards Babylonian territory. Larsa wasn't Sinmubalit's only concern. North of Babylon was a relatively new empire that scholars call the Kingdom of Upper Mesopotamia, ruled by a man named Shamshi-Adad. To the northeast was the Kingdom of Eshnunna. Both of these kingdoms posed existential threats to Babylon. One advantage that Sinmubalit had was that Shamshi-Adad and the kings of Eshnunna hated each other so much that they'd never ever unite against him. Located in the Diyala River Valley, Eshnunna's territory rapidly expanded during the reigns of two of its more ambitious kings, Ipik Adad II and Naram-Sin, not to be confused with Sargon the Great's grandson of the same name. One of the small states that Naram-Sin had annexed was the kingdom of Ekalatum whose king was Shamshi-Adad, son of Ila Kabkabu. At the time, Shamshi-Adad was no match for Eshnunna, and so he sought refuge with Sinmubalit in Babylon. After Naram-Sin's death, perhaps around 1812 or 1811 BC, Shamshi-Adad left Babylon with a group of his most trusted followers and took back Ekalatum, becoming king of the city once again. Throughout the entire ordeal, Shamshi-Adad learned a valuable lesson. Conquer or be conquered. Just three years after taking back Ekalatum, in 1808 BC, Shamshi-Adad captured the nearby city of Asher, the center of Assyrian life and religion. He then headed west to annex the stupendously wealthy city of Mari the center of yet another kingdom with an Amorite ruling house. The year 1792 BC is significant for a couple of reasons. It's the year when Shamshi-Adad conquered the kingdom of Mari, and also when Sinmubalat's son and successor, Hammurabi, became the sixth king of Babylon. The first five years of Hammurabi's reign were rather uneventful. From the various archives that have been uncovered, it seems that much of his time was spent on financial matters, renovating temples, and fixing canals. In 1787 BC, he launched perhaps his first military campaign against Rimsin of Larsa, and, surprisingly, took the cities of Isin and Uruk in the process. The Babylonians, though, weren't able to hold on to them, and within a few years, Rimsin had taken back both cities, along with another, the border town of Malgium. In the summer of 1775 BC, Shamshi died, and his empire collapsed shortly afterward. Most of the kingdoms that he and his sons had conquered declared their independence, including Mari. Its new king, Zimri Lim, who claimed to be a prince of the dynasty that ruled Mari before Shamshi-Adad's conquest, regained the throne with the backing of Yarim Lim, the powerful Amorite ruler of Yamhad, a kingdom to the west of Mari. 
Shortly after his father had been assassinated, Zimri Lim sought refuge in Yamhat's capital of Aleppo, and eventually married a daughter of Yarim Lim named Shibtu. Upon Shamshiadad's death, Yarim Lim sent Zimri Lim back to Mari with an army to oust Shamshiadad's son, Yasma Adu, who was there serving as his father's viceroy. Shamshiadad's other son, Ishmedagan, oversaw the western parts of his father's kingdom from Ekalatum, but eventually he was ousted by Eshnuna's king, Ibal Piel, and like his father had done a few decades before, he fled and sought refuge in Babylon. With Shamshiadad and his sons no longer in the picture, Hammurabi had two new potential threats on his northern borders, Mari and Eshnuna. Of the two, Mari would make for a stronger ally because of Zimri Lim's links with Yarim Lim of Yamhad. A letter from one of Zimri Lim's officials, Itur Astu, informs him as to just how powerful Yarim Lim was. No king is really powerful on his own. Ten to fifteen kings follow Hammurabi, the man of Babylon, Rimsin, the man of Larsa, Ibal Piel, the man of Eshnuna, and Amut Piel, the man of Katna. However, twenty kings follow Yarimlim, the man of Yamhad. In 1772 BC, Ibal Piel marched west from Eshnuna and took the city of Rapikam, which had up until then been a Babylonian possession. His control of the city also threatened to cut off Babylon from Mari, which was important because Zimri Lim controlled access to most of the major trade routes to the west. Almost immediately, Hammurabi sent men to fight alongside Zimri Lim against their new common enemy. The brief war that followed with Eshnuna ultimately ended up being a stalemate, though Ibal Piel did gain some territory at Mari's expense and the Babylonians were able to take back Rapikam. Only after this was peace with Eshnuna reached. However, a greater, regional war was just on the horizon. Ibal Piel of Eshnuna may have been eager for peace with Babylon and Mari because he had a bigger fish on his tail. Elam, specifically the most powerful man in Elam, the Sukalma whose seat was in the ancient city of Anshan. The peoples of Mesopotamia had a love-hate relationship with the land of Elam and its inhabitants. Though they often had armed conflicts with Elamites, the two were also trading partners. The cities of Sumer and Akkad were poor in raw materials, while Elam was rich in natural resources, especially metals and minerals. The Elamites also controlled many of the valuable trade routes that connected Mesopotamia to the many peoples who lived far to the east. In 1767 BC, the Sukalma wrote to Zimri Lim and requested that both he and Hammurabi help him in his fight against Ibal Piel and Ishnuna. As Ibal Piel was seen as the greater threat for both of them, the two kings agreed and sent troops to fight alongside the Sukalma. The alliance proved fruitful, and Eshnuna fell the following year. 
In the aftermath of the war, Hammurabi occupied the cities of Mankisum and Ubi. This enraged the Sokolma, who had claimed Mankisum for himself, and ordered Hammurabi to evacuate it immediately, which the Babylonian king refused to do. The Sukalma then took Mankisum by force, showing that he was serious and not just making idle threats. It now became clear to Hammurabi that the Sukalma was not content with just Eshnuna, but that he wished to expand his influence much further into Mesopotamia. If the Sukalma could take Mankisum, then he could also march his troops to Babylon. And so, Hammurabi did what many at the time would have thought to have been unthinkable. He reached out to his longtime rival, Rimsin of Larsa, and asked for help. Rimsin gave him no answer. As for the Elamites, they continued onward across northern Mesopotamia, capturing and looting all of the cities and towns along their way. Zimri-Lim also contacted Yarim-Lim of Yamhad for aid, but here too, there was no answer, because Yarim-Lim had already died by the time his letter arrived. The Sakalma managed to take the city of Upi from Hammurabi, and then sent a message to all of the remaining kings of northern Mesopotamia that he was going to march south with an army of 40,000 men and take the city of Babylon. The message was clear. If they didn't fall in line, then he would come for their cities as well. It's here that the Sokolma's ambition, coupled with his arrogance, seems to have contributed to his downfall. Though the rulers of the smaller kingdoms, as well as the regional warlords, were often hostile towards each other, they were much more suspicious of the Sokolma and his intentions for the rest of Mesopotamia. After all, the Sukalma and the Elamites were foreigners, and could not be trusted to do anything else but exploit their lands, as had often been the case several times in the past. And so, many of them assembled a broad coalition to check the Sukalma's advance further into the land of the two rivers. Zimri-Lim also sent more troops to support Hammurabi, which put further pressure on the Sukalma's forces. Realizing that he had overextended his forces and that the tide had clearly turned against him, the Sukalma and his army were forced to retreat back home through the territory of Eshnuna, but not before looting every town on their way to Elam. And so ended the latest Elamite incursion into Mesopotamia. It would not be the last. The defeat of Elam and Hammurabi's role in it must have inflated his ego. Though Hammurabi wouldn't have been able to have defeated the Sukalma and his men without Zimri-Lim's help, he nevertheless took all of the credit for their expulsion from Mesopotamia and claimed in an inscription that he had secured the foundations of Sumer and Akkad. During the war with Elam, Larsa's ruler, Rimsin, had remained on the sidelines despite Hammurabi's call for aid. There were likely several reasons for this, most of them being quite practical. 
As far as we know, Rim Sin had no quarrel with the Sukalma of Elam, and many scholars believe that he may have even had Elamite ancestry. Larsa also had a long, porous border with Elam. Were Rim Sin to have joined Hammurabi, then Larsa would have been extremely vulnerable to an Elamite attack from the east. Probably most troubling to Rim Sin was Hammurabi's seemingly unbridled ambition. Rim Sin, who by then was an old man with a great deal of political wisdom, knew that Hammurabi was much more ambitious than his predecessors, and after ending his quarrel with Elam, there was a good chance that he would become more aggressive towards Larsa. After all, the two kingdoms had a tumultuous history and were almost never on good terms. It was hard for Rim Sin to trust someone like Hammurabi, let alone enter an alliance with him. A war to the north in Eshnuna with the Sokalma may have suited his interests just fine, because it would keep Hammurabi occupied for the time being and take his sights away from Larsa. As it turned out, though, Rim Sin had been wrong. Hammurabi and his coalition had defeated the Sukalma, as well as taken over much of the land once belonging to Eshnuna, making him, in effect, much stronger than before. Hammurabi's victory also turned him into a sort of savior of all of Mesopotamia, for it was he who led the fight against the Sukalma and his foreign Elamite army. At least, that's what his propagandists conveyed to the population. Accusing Rimsin of not only rejecting his alliance against the Sukalma, but also of possibly collaborating with the Elamites and violating Babylonian territory, Hammurabi launched an invasion of Larsa. There aren't many details about the campaign, but things seem to have been moving in Hammurabi's direction when he laid siege to the city of Mashkan Shapir. This city was reportedly being defended by Rimsin's brother and thousands of troops, who eventually surrendered to Hammurabi on the promise that he would treat the population with mercy. Soon after his victory, other cities also surrendered to Hammurabi and the Babylonian army. Reinforcements also came from Hammurabi's allies, such as Zimri Lim. Rim Sin sent messengers to kings as far away as Katna in the Levant, asking them to aid him in his struggle against Babylon, but to no avail. Finally, one day in 1763 BC, the 31st year of Hammurabi's reign, a Babylonian army entered Larsa after a long siege, during which the city ran out of food. Babylonian texts tell us what happened next. Hammurabi, king of Babylon, mustered his troops and marched on Rim Sin. He conquered Ur, Larsa, took away their possessions to Babylon, and brought Rim Sin there in a neck stock. The next year, 1762 BC, Hammurabi captured and annexed what remained of Eshnuna into his growing empire. During that campaign, Hammurabi requested Zimrilim to send troops from Mari to augment his own forces, but the latter ignored him. His reasoning seems obvious. 
Hammurabi and Babylon were growing just too powerful, and Zimri Lim rightly feared that after Eshnuna, Hammurabi would come for Mari. Zimri Lim's refusal to answer his call incensed Hammurabi, who saw such lack of action as a betrayal. But Zimri Lim was also a king and not a servant of Hammurabi, and he must have been tired of constantly having to do Babylon's bidding, like some common vassal. His fears of the Babylonians coming for Mari were justified after all, for in the year 1762 BC, Hammurabi sent an army to take Mari. It's not known if Zimri Lim was even there. It's possible that he may have been out campaigning with one of his allies in the west. What is known from Babylonian sources is that Hammurabi's men entered Mari, took anything of value that they could find, tore down Mari's protective walls, and then set the city on fire. One Babylonian text from the time states, rather poetically, what Hammurabi did. When he took Mari and the towns in that area, he destroyed the walls and changed the landscape into hills and ruins. With more money and men, Hammurabi's final years were spent annexing other territories into his growing empire, especially in northern Mesopotamia. While to some it may seem that Hammurabi was always at war, Military campaigns were not his only focus. Documents from various parts of Babylonia indicate that much of Hammurabi's time was devoted to running affairs of state, building temples, constructing forts, maintaining canals, and working out trade agreements with neighboring kingdoms. The information that scholars have obtained from accounting texts and letters to his subordinates show that Hammurabi was obsessed with even the minor details of governing. It's during his final years that Hammurabi consolidated what would become his famous code of laws. With nearly 300 different laws covering everything from theft, murder, financial transactions, money laundering, marriage, personal injuries, debt, workers' wages, farming, land management, inheritance, and everything in between, Hammurabi's law code is the longest and best organized legal collection that we know of from ancient Mesopotamia. Though in widespread use for centuries after his death, it was also heavily influenced by older legal traditions, both written and oral. Many of the punishments in Hammurabi's code were quite harsh, not just by our standards today, but also when compared to earlier Sumerian law codes where the punishment could often be mitigated or even annulled with a simple fine. Examples from Hammurabi's code include the following. If a woman innkeeper should refuse to accept grain for the price of beer, but accepts only silver measured by the large weight, thereby reducing the value of beer in relation to the value of grain, they shall charge and convict that woman innkeeper, and they shall cast her into the water. If a man should blind the eye of another man, they shall blind his eye. However, such laws did not apply equally to all members of society. 
punishments varied according to one's social class. For example, in the law just mentioned regarding blinding, the term for a man or person is awilu, meaning one from the elite or upper class. If the same offense was committed against a commoner or a slave, then the sentence was often much more lenient. In the next two laws, the person committing the crime is one from the elite, awilu class. If he should blind the eye of a commoner or break the bone of a commoner, he shall weigh and deliver sixty shekels of silver. If he should blind the eye of an awilu's slave or break the bone of an awilu's slave, he shall weigh and deliver one half of his value in silver. Not all laws carried such heavy punishments. In fact, there were many provisions within the code to help out those who may have been suffering from circumstances beyond their control, like the following law demonstrates. If a man has a debt lodged against him, and the storm god, Adad, devastates his field, or a flood sweeps away the crops, or there is no grain grown in the field due to insufficient water, in that year he will not repay grain to his creditor. He shall suspend performance of his contract, and he will not give interest payments for a year. In the end, Hammurabi transformed Babylon from a relatively mid-sized kingdom into an empire that at its height covered pretty much all of Iraq and much of eastern Syria. However, it wouldn't last, as his successors seem to have had neither his charisma nor, perhaps more importantly, the capability to govern and hold together such a vast domain. Hammurabi's firstborn son and designated successor was Samsuiluna. Archives reveal that he spent considerable time in Mari during the reign of Zimri Lim, but what exactly he was doing there isn't known. During the final years of Hammurabi's reign, the great Babylonian king became ill, and Samsuiluna became his co-ruler. When Hammurabi died in 1750 BC, after 42 years on the throne, Samsuiluna officially became the first dynasty of Babylon's seventh king. According to records, the first seven or eight years of Samsuiluna's reign were focused on economic matters and temple construction. However, in 1742 BC, he faced the first real challenge to his rule in the form of a massive rebellion that not only started in the city of Larsa, but also just happened to have been led by a man named Rim Sin. While a few have speculated that this was the same Rim Sin who had been defeated by his father in 1763 BC, the overwhelming majority of scholars believe that it was an entirely different person. When the original Rim Sin lost his throne to Hammurabi, he was already an old man in his late 60s or early 70s, and most likely wouldn't have still been alive, let alone able to organize and execute a full-scale rebellion against Babylon. For this reason, scholars call him Rim Sin II. Records from the 1740s BC indicate that conditions in Larsa were awful, 
with inflation spiraling out of control and famine crippling the city and surrounding countryside. The same conditions were also present in Uruk as well, and following the example of Rim Sin II, a certain Rim Anum declared his city's independence and crowned himself as its new king. Other self-appointed kings also took the thrones of Isin, Kazalu, and Ishnuna, while several other cities, including Lagash, Ur, and the holy city of Nippur, staged massive revolts of their own. At first, Rimanum and Rimsin II worked together against their common enemy, Samsuiluna. However, later on, Rimanum turned against Rimsin II and allied himself with Samsuiluna, who may have made him an offer of clemency if he abandoned the rebellion and Rimsin. Whatever the real reason for their breakup was, Rimsin II and his coalition dispatched a force to subdue Rimanum and Uruk, but it was defeated, at least according to a statement issued by Rimanum. It read, The year in which King Rimanum inflicted a defeat on the troops of the land of Larsa, the armies of Ishnuna, Isin, and Kazalu, altogether having presented themselves at Uruk for war. Since time immemorial, Uruk had never experienced such a dust storm raised by a foreign army. But after the dust storm settled, he slaughtered all of them and by his power, ejected them all from the homeland. While Rimanum may have claimed victory, it was really Samsuiluna who benefited as many of his rebel adversaries had now been defeated or severely weakened, which made it much easier for the Babylonian king to forcibly take their kingdoms back into his empire. While the details of what happened next aren't known, we do know from temple documents that barely two years after the rebellions had started, Samsuiluna was back in control of Larsa, and by 1737 BC, also Uruk, Isin, Nippur, Ishnuna, and nearly all of the other cities that had rebelled against him. Rimsin II had been killed, and Rimanum disappeared from the scene. In all, Samsuiluna claims to have defeated or killed at least 26 kings and rebel leaders, as one inscription attributed to him reads, The year was not half over that he, Samsuiluna, killed Rimsin, the agitator of Imutbal, who had been elevated to the kingship of Larsa, and in the land of Kish, he heaped up a burial mound over him. He killed twenty-six rebellious kings, his foes. He annihilated all of them. He captured Iluni, king of Eshnuna, who had been disobedient to him. He carried him off in Nextox and destroyed his life. He caused the land of Sumer and Akkad to live in agreement. He caused the Four Quarters to dwell under his command. Statements such as this, though, can be a bit misleading when it comes to the reach of Samsuiluna's power, for by the early 1720s BC, it's clear that the Babylonian Empire, created by Hammurabi, was already in decline. Documents from Nippur, Isin, and other cities in what had once been the Sumerian Deep South 
indicate that they no longer recognized the king in Babylon as their overlord, and were now under the influence of a new power referenced in texts as the dynasty of the Sealand. Little today is known about this so-called dynasty, but it seems that its kings presided over the marshlands of southern Mesopotamia. After 38 years on the throne, Samsuiluna passed away in 1712 BC. He was succeeded by his son, Abi Eshua, the first of the last four kings of Babylon's founding dynasty. Unlike with the reigns of Hammurabi and Samsuiluna, there is relatively little documentation dating to the collective 116 years that these kings sat on the throne. The few texts that have been uncovered mention only six military campaigns, which is odd in the history of ancient Mesopotamia. While it's tempting to think that this means there was peace and tranquility throughout the land, the likely scenario is that the last Babylonian kings either avoided armed conflicts because they lacked the men and resources to win them, or they may have simply been on the losing side of most of them, and thus didn't record or state their losses in their inscriptions and public statements, since doing so would have shown them as being weak and incompetent. The few conflicts that were recorded mention one with Kassites near the city of Kish, as well as an incident involving an army from Elam. There was also a war with Eshnuna around 1696 BC, in which Abi Yeshua claimed victory, as one of his rare inscriptions states. King Abiyashur, by the perfect power of the god Marduk, defeated in a powerful battle the army of the land of Eshnuna on the way from Tashil, and took prisoner Ahushina, the king of Eshnuna. The last military encounter on record was between King Amiditana of Babylon and Demik Ilushu of the Selen dynasty, in which the Babylonians claim victory by destroying an enemy fortress. Around 1632 BC, during the reign of Amisaduka, there are letters from the king to one of his governors regarding raids around Sippar by armed groups of marauders. In one of the letters, the king suggests that his governors take the appropriate precautions to fortify their cities and towns, as well as have farmers move their animals to safer places in the mountains, and for the townspeople to stay within the city's protective walls, until the danger has passed. The last king of the first dynasty of Babylon, Samsuditana, reigned for 31 years. Like his three predecessors, there are few documents and inscriptions from his time on the throne, but those that are available show that many groups on the kingdom's periphery, including Kassites, Elamites, Hurrians, and people from around Eshnuna, were constantly harassing Babylon's borders. While a great nuisance, all of these groups were known entities and could eventually be dealt with through force or by simply bribing them to do Babylon's bidding. Around 1630 BC, a Hittite king named Hattushili had acquired a large kingdom of his own in central Anatolia. Wanting to expand into the more fertile and prosperous lands of the Levant and Mesopotamia, he launched several campaigns of conquest to acquire the wealth that most believe existed in the great kingdoms to his southeast. 
Hattusili mercilessly attacked the once-powerful kingdom of Yamhad, but ultimately failed to take its capital city of Aleppo. This, though, was finally achieved in 1595 BC by his grandson and successor, Murshili I. With the newfound wealth and plunder obtained from Yamhad's coffers, Murshili then led his Hittite army on a 2,000-kilometer march along the Euphrates into the heart of Babylonia, sacking many of the cities along the way until he finally arrived at the gates of Babylon. There are few details written down about his campaign. The Babylonian Chronicle, known as Chronicle 40, simply tells us, During the time of Samsuditana, the Hittites marched on Akkad. A more detailed account is given in the Hittite document known as the Proclamation of Telipinu. It records the following about the reign of Murshili. And then he marched to Aleppo, and he destroyed Aleppo and brought captives and possessions of Aleppo to Hattusha. Then, however, he marched to Babylon, and he destroyed Babylon, and he defeated the Hurrian troops, and he brought captives and possessions of Babylon to Hattusha. The Hittites plundered the city and its temples, including the main one dedicated to the city's patron god, Marduk where they stole the sacred image or statue of the deity. However, Murshili didn't stay long, nor did he leave a garrison of troops anywhere in Babylonia, for it appears that his time away from the Hittite heartland had caused a great deal of political trouble for him at home. Shortly after returning to the Hittite capital of Hattusha, he was assassinated. As for Samsuditana, we never hear about him, nor anyone from his dynasty, ever again. Contemporary inscriptions, texts, or any other form of records documenting what happened next have not been uncovered, but later writings allude to there being political chaos throughout Babylonia. One Babylonian text written over 500 years after the fall of Babylon to the Hittites makes a casual reference to the time period which it describes in the following way. When the fighting of the Amorites, the insurrection of the Hanians, and the army of the Kassites upset the boundaries of Sumer and Akkad during the reign of Samsuditana, and the ground plans could not be recognized, and the borders were not designed. Of these and other groups that were present throughout ancient Mesopotamia in the 16th century BC, it was a Kassite family, or tribe, that eventually garnered the most power in Babylonia, as well as control of the city of Babylon itself. They would go on to rule most of the land for over 400 years and become the longest ruling dynasty in the history of ancient Mesopotamia. Because of their language and ethnic identity, scholars simply called this ruling house the Kassite dynasty of Babylon. The word Kassite comes from Kashu, which is the term that Akkadian speakers used to identify them. The Kassites, though, called themselves Galzu. The Kassites first appear in a text attributed to Hammurabi's son and successor, Samsuiluna. Dated to approximately 1742 BC, 
the king mentions a military encounter where he destroyed the foundations of the Kassite troops at Kikala. From then onward, Kassites also appear in other texts as skilled horsemen and charioteers who served the king as mercenaries or made up the personal guard of powerful officials such as governors. Other documents listing people with distinctly Kassite names indicate that they were also hired as seasonal laborers. The Kassites, whose homeland was somewhere in the Zagros Mountains, had a language of their own, but it's not very well understood by modern scholars. Our knowledge of it comes primarily from the few Akkadian Kassite dictionaries that have been found, which outline some basic vocabulary, mostly dealing with horses and the names of a few Kassite deities. Linguists have also identified several Kassite loanwords that filtered into the Babylonian dialect of Akkadian. But again, most of these deal with horses or related subjects such as chariot riding. This comes as no surprise, because the Kassites were widely known as skilled horsemen during the Late Bronze Age. Exactly when and how the Kassite dynasty first consolidated its rule over Babylonia is hotly debated by scholars. Some believe that they may have been favored by the Hittites, who were also skilled horsemen and chariot riders. They've also argued that the Kassites may have spoken in Indo-European language similar to that of the Hittites, and due to this, they became natural allies. These, though, are just theories, and there's little, if any, evidence to support them. The earliest known Kassite ruler was a man named Gandash, who we only know about through his name appearing on two king lists and a short inscription where he addresses himself as King of the Four Quarters, King of Sumer and Akkad, King of Babylon. His successor was Agum I, who in one of the king lists is referred to as both Agum the Great and the son of Gandash. Little is known about these two rulers beyond their names, including when they supposedly reigned as kings and how much territory they actually controlled. For all practical purposes, they may have been little more than powerful tribal leaders who were given the title of king by their descendants. The next Kassite rulers were Kashtaliyash I, Abir Ratash, Kashtaliyash II, and Urzi Gurumash, which are all distinctly Kassite names. Like their predecessors, we only know about them from a few king lists and their mention in a few texts or building inscriptions. However, a lot more historical evidence has been uncovered with regard to the next Kassite king, Agum II, also known as Agum Kakrime, who likely lived around 1570 BC. According to one of his inscriptions, it was he who retrieved the statue of Marduk that the Hittites had stolen during Mershili's conquest of Babylon. How he did this isn't mentioned, but the purpose of the inscription is clear. Since Marduk returned to Babylon during the reign of Agum II, then Agum must have been the god's chosen ruler, and thus the legitimate king of Babylon. In their efforts to become the undisputed rulers over all of Babylonia, 
the Kassite kings launched campaigns against the so-called Silen dynasty to the south. To increase their legitimacy in the eyes of the people, they first took the holy city of Nippur and by 1475 BC had annexed all of southern Mesopotamia down to the marshlands surrounding the gulf. The text known as Babylonian Chronicle 40 tells us the fate of the Silen dynasty and its last king. Iagamil, king of the Sealand, fled to Elam. Later, Ulam Buryash, brother of Kashtaliash III, the Kassite, mustered his army, conquered the Sealand, and governed the country. And so, after nearly 300 years, Babylonia was united into a single kingdom once again, which the Kassites and later others would call Karduniash. Along with political reunification came economic renewal. Trade between the city of Babylon and the Gulf brought in desperately needed raw materials, including copper and stone from as far away as present-day Oman. With these new resources and wealth, kings such as Kara Indash were able to restore important temples, such as the one dedicated to the goddess Inanna in the city of Uruk. Two of the more important Kassite kings were named Korigalzu, which means Shepherd of the Kassites. The first Korigalzu ruled sometime during the 1390s BC, while the reign of the second one was between 1332 to 1308 BC. Both were great builders, but the first one is credited with the establishment of a new royal residence called Dur Korigalzu, meaning Fort Kurigalzu. Located about 100 kilometers north of Babylon, Dur Kurigalzu contained royal palaces, administrative buildings, several temples, and at least one large ziggurat. Most religious sites in the city were dedicated to the god Enlil, who around this time became the patron deity of the Kassite royal family. Thus, it's no surprise that the city of Nippur, home of the Ikor, the great temple of Enlil, was also an important site of pilgrimage for the Kassite kings. To the north of Babylonia was the rapidly expanding kingdom of Assyria. Once consisting of just the small shrine town of Asher, the Assyrians had expanded their influence due to their commercial endeavors throughout northern Mesopotamia and southeastern Anatolia. But in the 15th century BC, Assyria was a vassal of the powerful Hurrian kingdom of the Mitanni. Though Assyrian kings often revolted against their Mitanni overlords, they were generally unsuccessful. And on one occasion, the Mitanni king, Shaushtatar, sacked the city of Asher and looted its holy temple, taking as his prize a door made of silver and gold. Despite this, the Assyrians kept revolting and by around 1350 BC, the Assyrian king, Ashur-Uballit I, decisively defeated the Mitanni king, Shutarna III, in battle. This not only ended Mitanni control over most of northern Mesopotamia, but was perhaps also the crucial event that allowed Assyria to become a major regional power. 
For the most part, the Kassite kings of Karduniash had good relations with their Mitanni counterparts, the latter who seemed to have had little interest in expanding further into southern Mesopotamia. However, the emergence of a newly independent and militaristic Assyria on Babylonia's northern border was cause for concern, especially when spies of the Kassite king Burnaburiash II reported that Ashurubalit was corresponding with the pharaoh of Egypt. Enraged, he wrote the following in a letter to the Egyptian king. The Assyrians are my subjects, and it was not I who sent them to you. Why have they taken it upon themselves to come to your country? If you love me, let them conduct no business there, but send them back to me empty-handed. The Assyrians, of course, were not subjects of Babylon, but an independent kingdom that was rapidly expanding in all directions. There's no doubt that Burnaburiash saw a rising Assyria as his greatest threat. But, other than writing letters of complaint to his regional counterparts, there's little he could have done. Ashurubalito was more occupied with military matters to the west, and didn't want to open up another front with Babylonia. And so, to keep the peace and increase cooperation between the two kingdoms, Ashurubalit married his daughter, Mubalatat Sherua, to Burnaburiash II. The two newlyweds eventually had a son named Karahardash, who in 1333 BC became the new king of Babylon. However, after less than a year on the throne, Karahardash was reportedly killed by his own troops in a rebellion, after which the soldiers picked a new king named Nazibugash. Ashurubalit was infuriated at the murder of his grandson and marched down to Babylon to intervene. In a Syrian document known as the Synchronistic History, which most scholars have deemed to be fairly accurate, describes what happened next. In the time of Ashur-Ubalit, king of Assyria, Kassite troops rebelled against Karahardash, king of Karduniash, son of Mubalitat Sherua, the daughter of Ashur-Ubalit, and killed him. They appointed Nazibugash, a Kassite, son of nobody, as king over them. Ashurubalit marched to Karduniash to avenge Karahardash, his grandson. He killed Nazibugash, the king of Karduniash, appointed Kurigalzu the Younger, son of Burnaburiash, as king and put him on the throne of his father. Kurigalzu the Younger, mentioned in this text, is actually Kurigalzu II, not to be confused with the earlier king, Kurigalzu I. Being chosen by Ashurubalit, though, didn't necessarily endear Assyria to Kurigalzu II, and during his 24-year reign between 1332 to 1308 BC, border clashes between the two kingdoms were common. The ultimate results, though, were mixed. The Assyrians would often capture a fortress, only to have the Babylonians take it back, and vice versa. Often, Assyrian and Babylonian chronicles don't even agree on the outcomes of what scholars believe were the same battles or series of events. In the end, these brief skirmishes effectively did nothing to change the balance of power between the two kingdoms. 
By the 13th century BC, Assyria was clearly the more powerful of the two, especially after its annexation of what had formerly been Mitanni territories. It was during this time that one of Assyria's most powerful and controversial kings, Tukulti Ninurta I, turned his gaze south towards Babylonia. Ruling between the years 1243 to 1207 BC, Tukulti Ninurta first concluded a peace treaty with the Hittite king Tudhalia IV in order to shore up his western borders, and then moved south to attack the armies of the Kassite king. Kashtaliash IV. The reasons for his hostility towards Babylonia are unknown, but some historians think that Kashtaliash had previously taken advantage of Tukulti Ninurta's earlier conflict with the Hittites to seize some Assyrian territory along his northern border. Regardless of the reason, Tukulti Ninurta made his campaign against Kashtaliash a very personal one. In a great work of royal propaganda, known as the Epic of Tukulti Ninurta, we're told that the conflict started due to Kashtaliash breaking an oath to the sun god, Shamash. What exactly this oath was isn't stated, only that Kashtaliash was an evil man for breaking it. It may have been some sort of treaty, the details of which haven't been uncovered just yet. But for this great offense, the Epic tells us that the gods became furious with Kashtaliash and ordered Tukulti Ninurta to bring him to justice. The good, oath-keeping Assyrian king had no choice but to go to battle with Kashtaliash, who upon seeing the mighty Tukulti Ninurta was flushed with fear, as the epic tells us. Tukulti Ninurta, having relied on keeping the oath, planned for battle, while Kashtaliash's spirits fell because he transgressed the instruction of the gods. He was afraid because of the cry of complaint to Shamash and the appeal to the gods. He was frightened and concerned. The command of the great king paralyzed his body like an evil spirit. Kashtaliash thought, I did not listen to the Assyrian. I disregarded the messenger. I did not appease him earlier. I failed to see his good plan. My sins are numerous before Shamash. My guilt is great. The Assyrian is constantly attentive to all the gods. Epics generally use very dramatic and flowery language, Tukulti Ninurta's being no exception. The Assyrian king's own royal inscriptions, though, are much more concise. In those, his conquest of Babylon and Babylonia is described as follows. At that time I approached Kashtaliash, king of Karduniash, to do battle. I brought about the defeat of his army. In the midst of that battle, I captured Kashtaliash, king of the Kassites, and I brought him bound as captive into the presence of the god Asher, my lord. Thus I became the lord of Sumer and Akkad in its entirety, and stood over its inhabitants with joy and excellence. The Babylonian version of the same events is not as rosy. In Babylonian Chronicle 45, which focuses on the reigns of several Kassite kings, we're told that Tukulti Ninurta 
destroyed Babylon's walls, slaughtered many of its inhabitants, and not only plundered the Isagila, which was the great temple of the city's patron deity, Marduk, but also carried off the holy statue of the god to Assyria. The words of the Babylonian Chronicle state the following. Tukulti-Ninurta returned to Babylon. He battered down Babylon's wall, crushed the Babylonians. He carried away the riches of the Isagila and Babylon. He took the great lord, Marduk, out of his dwelling place and made him set out for Assyria. He installed his own governors in Karduniash. For seven years, Tukulti-Ninurta dominated Karduniash. No matter how Tukulti-Ninurta spun it, his desecration of the city of Babylon was an affront that even many Assyrians believed went too far. Though the Assyrians considered themselves a separate people from the Babylonians, most of them respected and acknowledged that the city of Babylon itself was very special, if not sacred. In the words of the great Assyriologist H.W.F. Sags, Babylonia was not a land of barbarians that could be invaded at will like the regions beyond Assyria's northern borders. It was the source and center of civilization, and its capital, Babylon, was a religious shrine of the highest sanctity. To sack Babylon in the ancient world was like sacking the Vatican or Jerusalem or Mecca in our own time. Despite sending a garrison of Assyrian troops and appointing his own governors to manage the city as well as the surrounding countryside, Babylon and Babylonia were vulnerable. Tukulti-Ninurta seemed to simply want to conquer Babylonia, but not actually govern it. The later Babylonian kinglists state that there were three Kassite kings who ruled during the Assyrian occupation. They were probably just figureheads and puppet rulers of the Assyrians. None of them had long reigns. The first two of the three, Enlil-Nadin Shumi and Kadashman Harbe II, each ruled for barely a year, while the third, Adad Shuma-Idina, ruled for five. Short reigns were generally a sign of political instability. With the Assyrian troops and governors focused on maintaining order in the capital, other parts of Babylonia were now susceptible to foreign attacks. Babylonian Chronicle 45 records two Elamite incursions, the first one taking place during the short reign of Enlil-Nadim Shumi. At the time of King Enlil-Nadim Shumi, Kitin Hutran, the king of Elam, attacked. He went into action against Nippur and scattered its people. He destroyed Dare and E. Dimgal Kalama carried off its people, drove them away, and eliminated the rule of King Enlil-Nadim Shumi. The second Elamite attack, also carried out by Kutin Hutran, was during the reign of Adad Shuma-Idina, and though the text is badly damaged, some details can be gleaned from it, namely attacks against the cities of Isin and Marad. In the time of Adad Shuma-Idina, for the second time, Kitin Hutran took the offensive against Akkad. He destroyed Isin, 
crossed the Tigris. Marad inflicted a formidable defeat on a very great people. Though these and other parts of Babylonia were now technically Assyrian possessions, the Kulti Ninurta did nothing to stop such attacks. Instead, he built a new royal residence just outside of Asher that he called Kar Tukulti Ninurta. While Tukulti Ninurta claimed to have deposed Kashtaliash IV, he apparently hadn't captured or killed all of the members of the Kassite royal family. According to chronicles and other texts, one Kassite prince was still residing outside of Babylon in the southern provinces where the presence of Assyrian troops was at a minimum. This was Adad Shuma Usar, who apparently had enough local support that around 1217 BC he was able to kick out the Assyrians from Babylon and become the city's king. He would go on to reign for 30 years, the longest of any Kassite ruler. As for Tukulti Ninurta, he was assassinated in 1208 BC in a conspiracy that involved his sons. Babylonian Chronicle 45 records the following. After the rebellion of the officials of Akkad and Karduniash, and the installation of Adad Shuma Usur on the throne of his father, Assyrian officials revolted against Tukulti Ninurta, deposed him from his throne, locked him in a room in Kar Tukulti Ninurta, and put him to death. After this, there was relative peace in Babylonia. In fact, the Assyrian state went into decline, in large part because it was closer to the events of the Late Bronze Age Collapse, which occurred roughly between 1200 to 1175 BC. Adad Shuma Usur's long and stable reign ended in 1187 BC, and he was succeeded by his son, Melishipak, who himself had a peaceful reign of 14 years. Even relations with Elam at this time were good, and cordial enough that Melishipak married his eldest daughter to the Elamite king Shutruk Nahunte. While this would complicate things in the future, for the time being, it helped to ensure peace between the two countries. His son and successor, Marduk Aplaidina I, also seems to have had few problems with ruling the kingdom. But there's often calm before a major storm, and in this case, the fierce winds that would tear through Babylonia would blow from two directions. One of these came from the north. According to the Assyrian synchronistic history, the Assyrian king, Ashurdan I, invaded Babylonia and defeated the Kassite king, Zababa Shuma Idina, in 1158 BC. This greatly weakened the Kassite kingdom of Karduniash, but didn't kill it. The second and most fatal wind would come from the east. After the defeat of Zababa Shuma Idina, there may have been a brief dispute as to who was the rightful heir to the throne. The one who ended up succeeding him was Enlil Nadin Ahi, but his lineage was questionable, and he may not have even been related to the royal family. This, though, was enough for Shutruk Nahunte of Elam 
to claim the Babylonian throne as his own, with his justification being that it was his right, due to his marriage, to Melishipak's eldest daughter. His claim would have seemed ludicrous to people at the time, and it was likely just an excuse to raid what must have been a politically and militarily weak Babylon. Shutruk-Nahunte launched a full-scale invasion of northern Babylonia and plundered Durkurigalzu, Agade, Sippar, and other cities. Some of the most famous objects that he took back with him to Susa and that were dug up almost 3,000 years later by French archaeologists are the now-famous Stila of the Code of Hammurabi and the Victory Stila of Naram-Sin, both of which are today in the Louvre. Enlil Nadin Ahi fought on, but in 1155 BC, shutruk son, Kutur-Nuhunte, captured him and took him to Elam along with the Isagila's statue of Marduk. That same year, shutruk died, and kutur became the new king of Elam and Babylon, effectively ending the Kassite dynasty that had ruled over much of Babylonia for nearly four centuries. Along with general peace and stability throughout the realm, the era of Kassite rule was a great time culturally for Babylonia, for it's during this period that some of the most significant works of Akkadian literature were composed. One of these is the standard Babylonian version of the Epic of Gilgamesh that we're all familiar with today. Another is Ludlil Bel Nemeki, meaning let me praise the Lord of Wisdom, who in this case is the god Marduk. Sometimes called the Babylonian Book of Job, Ludlil Bel Nemeki is a story that explores the sufferings of the righteous and the seemingly whimsical nature of divine justice. After the fall of the Kassite dynasty, the Elamites are known to have occupied large parts of Babylonia for several decades. But when exactly their troops left, and a native Babylonian dynasty took over, can't be determined with a high degree of certainty. The new Babylonian dynasty that did arise is called by scholars the Second Dynasty of Essene. This name though is deceptive, because the kings of this line never claimed to have been from Essene. The name was given because the governor of Essene often appears in legal documents and from many of the Kuduru monuments that are attributed to this dynasty. We call it the second dynasty of Essene to differentiate it from the first dynasty of Essene that was founded by Ishbiera nearly a millennium earlier. Very little is known about the kings of the second dynasty of Essene with the exception of their names, which are all Akkadian. Scholars have had to put together a working narrative of this dynasty based on scattered inscriptions, a few monuments, land grants, mentions in Babylonian chronicles, and texts from Assyrian archives. Of all of its rulers, the fourth one, Nebuchadnezzar I, is the best known and is today considered to have been one of the greatest Babylonian kings in history. Most scholars today believe that 1121 BC, 
was likely Nebuchadnezzar's first year as king. His father, Ninurta Nadin Shumi, had gone to war with Assyria, and the young Nebuchadnezzar seems to have continued this family legacy when he became king. The Assyrian chronicle, known as the Synchronistic History, tells us the following about him. Nebuchadnezzar took his siege engines and went to conquer Zanku, a fortress in Assyria. Ashereshaishi, king of Assyria, mustered his chariots to go against him. To prevent the siege engines being taken from him, Nebuchadnezzar burnt them. He turned and went home. This same Nebuchadnezzar, with chariots and infantry, went to conquer Edu, a fortress of Assyria. Ashereshaishi sent chariots and infantry to help the fortress. He fought with Nebuchadnezzar, brought about his total defeat, slaughtered his troops, and carried off his camp. Being an Assyrian document, the extent of Nebuchadnezzar's defeat may have been exaggerated, but the end result was that the two sides made peace, and eventually, perhaps some years later, Nebuchadnezzar visited the Assyrian capital of Ashur on a state visit, which is somewhat confirmed by an administrative document that outlines deliveries made on the day when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Karduniash, arrived. Nebuchadnezzar is best known for his military campaign against Elam and for recovering the statue of Marduk that had been stolen from Babylon by Kuturnahunte a few decades prior. The importance of recovering the statue cannot be overstated. In the mind of the average Babylonian of the 12th century BC, the absence of Marduk from his terrestrial home, the Isagila, meant that either the god was being held captive, or perhaps deliberately had chosen to stay in a foreign land away from Babylon. Both scenarios were grim, for Babylon could never again be great without the return of its patron deity, or so it was believed. There's a copy of a Babylonian literary document that was discovered in the library of Ashurbanipal that colorfully describes Nebuchadnezzar's restlessness and sadness at the loss of Marduk. In Babylon dwells Nebuchadnezzar, the king. He rages like a lion and thunders like the god Adad. Like a lion, he frightens his distinguished nobles. His supplications go to the god Marduk, lord of Babylon. Have pity on me, one who is dejected and prostrate. Have pity on my land, which weeps and mourns. Have pity on my people, who wail and weep. O lord of Babylon, how long will you dwell in the land of the enemy? May beautiful Babylon be remembered by you. Turn your face back to Isagil, which you love. Determined to recover the statue of Marduk, Nebuchadnezzar gathered an army and departed for Elam. Information regarding this campaign comes from a few sources, the most detailed being the inscription on a Kuduru belonging to a Kassite tribal leader named Shiti Marduk, who fought alongside Nebuchadnezzar. The inscription on the Koduru poetically describes how Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army 
reached the river Ulai, where they met the forces of the Elamite king, Hutulutish in Shushinak. An excerpt from the text reads, When Nebuchadnezzar, the reverent prince, the finest, the offspring of Babylon, the preeminent of kings, when Marduk, king of the gods, ordered him to avenge Akkad, he raised his weapons. From Der, the sanctuary of An, he launched an attack 30 leagues deep. The radiant heat burned like fire, and it was as if the roads were blazing like flames. There was no water in the watering pastures, and the watering places were cut off. The very finest of the horses stood still, while the legs of the heroic soldier buckled. Shiti Marduk, lord of the house of Bit Karziabku, whose chariot was on the right flank of the king, his lord, did not delay, and he kept control of his chariot. The potent king sped, and he reached the bank of the Ulai River. The kings met, and they both waged war. Fire ignited between them. The sun's face was obscured by their dust. By the command of the goddess Ishtar and the god Adad, the lords of combat, he routed Hutulutish, the king of Elam. So the king, Nebuchadnezzar, stood triumphantly. He seized Elam and looted its property. Though not specifically mentioned here, another document more or less gives the same concise description of the event, with one added detail. The Lord, Bel Marduk, returned to his home in Babylon. This is a reference to Nebuchadnezzar bringing the statue of Marduk back from Elam and returning it to the Isagila, an act that's acknowledged in later Babylonian literature and one which cemented his status as a national hero for all posterity. Though important, Nebuchadnezzar's defeat of Elam in battle did little to change the state of Babylon and the surrounding territories, which had been in steady decline since the final decades of the previous Kassite administration. While Akkadian kings may have been at the top, Kassites still held most of the important positions within the second dynasty of Essenes' new government. The country was in decline economically. With the exception of the city of Essene, archaeological surveys reveal that there was a great decrease in agricultural output due to fewer plots of land being cultivated, which also eventually led to a staggering decline in the general population. As of now, archaeologists have also found little evidence of any monumental building programs or even any substantial archives dating to the period, implying that many of Babylonia's institutions were weak or had perhaps broken down altogether. Despite the fact that Babylon had seen better days, there were several cultural achievements that took place during this period. One was the widespread adoption and canonization of the great literary work, Enuma Elish, commonly referred to in English as the Babylonian Epic of Creation. Made up of over 1,100 verses, Enuma Elish tells of how Marduk became the king of the gods for his role in vanquishing chaos and bringing order to the universe. Though the general story and concepts of the epic go back millennia, 
Enuma Elish codified all of these into one great myth with Marduk and the city of Babylon at its center. Up until then, Enlil had been the king of the gods, and his temple in Nippur, the holiest of all holy sites in Mesopotamia. But with the widespread adoption of Enuma Elish, at least theologically, the city of Babylon became the most important religious center, eventually overshadowing even Nippur in the eyes of many Babylonians. Enuma Elish was so popular that a few centuries later, the Assyrians basically copied it, with the only major change in their version being that the god Asher, instead of Marduk, was the true king of the gods. Another important text compiled around the same time is Sakiku, meaning all diseases. It became one of the most important as well as popular medical texts from Babylonia. Many copies of it have been found all over Mesopotamia, including in Assyrian archives. One of its passages, dealing with epilepsy, explains the neurological disease in some detail, and then goes into possible causes for seizures, which are generally described to be the work of malevolent spirits. For example, one passage reads, If the epilepsy demon falls upon him, and on a given day he seven times pursues him, he has been touched by the hand of the departed spirit of a murderer. He will die. Tensions flared up between Babylonia and Assyria during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar's brother, Marduk Nadin Ahi. While the respective Babylonian chronicles don't provide much information on the conflict, the Assyrian synchronistic history tells us that it took place during the reign of Tiglath-Pileser I, who is one of the most documented Assyrian kings in history. The text records the first part of the two-year conflict as follows. Concerning Tiglath-Pileser I, king of Assyria, and Marduk-Nadin-Ahi, king of Karduniash. Twice Tiglath-Pileser drew up a battle array of chariots, as many as there were, by the lower Zab, opposite Ahizuhina, and in the second year he defeated Marduk-Nadin-Ahi at Gurmaritu, which is upstream from Akkad. Durkurigalzu, Sippar, Babylon, and Opis, the great urban centers he captured together with their forts. In one of his many personal inscriptions, Tiglath-Pileser tells us how he defeated Marduk-Nadin-Ahi, but also that the Babylonian king escaped. I demolished the palaces of the city of Babylon that belonged to Marduk-Nadin-Ahi, king of Karduniash, and carried off a great deal of property from his palaces. Marduk-Nadin-Ahi, king of Karduniash, relied on the strength of his troops and his chariots, and he marched after me. He fought with me at the city of Shetula, which is upstream from the city of Agade on the Tigris River, and I dispersed his numerous chariots. I brought about the defeat of his warriors and his fighters in that battle. He retreated and went back to his land. Though he captured a lot of treasure from the cities that he plundered, 
and no doubt did a lot of damage, Tiglat Pileser was never able to capture Marduk Nadin Ahi, nor was he able to consolidate his territorial gains due to other threats that Assyria faced in the west. In fact, Marduk Nadin Ahi's downfall and death were ultimately not the result of the Assyrians, but Aramaeans who had swarmed into both Babylonia and Assyria, and at least according to various chronicles, caused havoc wherever they went. Babylonian Chronicle 15 records such a series of events. The Aramean houses increased, plundered, conquered and took many fortified cities of Assyria. People fled toward the mountains of Habruri to save their lives. They took their gold, their silver, and their possessions. Then Marduk Nadin Ahi, the king of Karduniash, disappeared. Marduk Shapigzeri acceded to his father's throne. The threat of Aramaeans overrunning both Babylonia and Assyria may have been so great that it forced the two kingdoms to reconcile their differences and make peace. Babylonian Chronicle 47 tells us how Marduk Nadin Ahi's son, Marduk Shapigzeri, finally concluded a treaty with Assyria. Marduk Shapigzeri, son of Marduk Nadin Ahi, rebuilt the wall of Babylon. During his reign, the people of the country enjoyed abundance and prosperity. He concluded a mutual accord and a peace with King Ashurbelkala of Assyria. At that time, the king went from Assyria to Sippar. And, at least according to the Assyrian synchronistic history, Marduk Shapigzeri's son and successor, Adad Aplaidina, married his daughter to the king of Assyria. Ashurbelkala, king of Assyria, married the daughter of Adad Aplaidina, king of Karduniash, and took her with a vast dowry to Assyria. The peoples of Assyria and Karduniash were joined together. But the end of hostilities between Babylon and Assyria didn't stem the tide of Aramean and other invaders, who according to Babylonian Chronicle 47, sowed even more discord during Adad Aplaidina's reign. According to the Chronicle, The Arameans and a usurper rebelled against Adad Aplaidina and profaned the holy cities, as many as there were in the country. They destroyed Agade, Dare, Nippur, Sippar, Durkurigalzu. The Sutians took the offensive and carried the treasures of Sumer and Akkad into their country. Towards the end of the dynasty, raids by Aramaeans, Sutians, and others into the Babylonian heartland were a common occurrence. Unfortunately, this wasn't the only security issue. Assyrian texts tell us that Ashurbelkala, who as we saw earlier was married to a Babylonian princess, raided parts of northern Babylonia and captured a Kassite governor in the service of Adad Aplaidina, which was a violation of the peace agreement signed between the two kingdoms barely a few decades before. Both Babylonian and Assyrian texts are silent with regard to what happened afterward. 
with information about the reigns of Babylon's last three kings being little more than names on a list with the number of years that each king sat on the throne. What transpired between the years 1021 to 730 BC is murky at best. The most complete Babylonian king list divides the period up into four dynasties. The first three, which date from 1021 to 975 BC, are all extremely short, implying that the period was not a politically stable one. Much of this may have been due to the influx of Aramaeans and Chaldeans into Babylonia, many of whom gave up their nomadic ways to permanently settle in the region. This no doubt would have fostered a great deal of competition for Babylonia's already strained resources. The fourth dynasty, which ruled between 974 to 732 BC, is simply known as Dynasty E. The first of these four dynasties is also the shortest. Its three kings ruled for a combined period of 20 years. Known by scholars today as the second dynasty of the Sealand, its first king, Simbar Shipak, was a Kassite, at least from his name. Simbar Shipak was able to repel the attacks of at least some Aramean and Sutian marauders, which according to historical texts, had been plundering several holy sites in Babylonia. One of these texts tells us the following about attacks on Nippur and Sippar. Concerning the throne of the god Enlil in Ikor, which Nebuchadnezzar, a previous king, had made. During the reign of Adad Apleidina, king of Babylon, the Aramean and Sutian foe, the enemy of Ikor and Nippur, the one who upset their rights in Sippar, the ancient city and abode of the great judge of the gods, plundered the land of Sumer and Akkad, and overthrew all the temples. Babylonian Chronicle 47 tells us that Simbar Shipak was at least able to restore the Ikor in Nippur. Simbar Shipak, descendant of Iribasin, a soldier of the Sealand, made the throne of Enlil in the Ikor. There are few mentions of Simbar Shepak in any other texts or inscriptions, but a document known as the Babylonian Royal or Dynastic Chronicle mentions that his successor, Iamukinzeri, was a usurper who reigned for only three months. Iamukinzeri, a usurper, a son of Hashmar, reigned three months. He was buried in the marshland of Bit Hashmar. Though Iamukinzeri is an Akkadian name, Hashmar in Kassite means falcon, and so this particular king was also likely of Kassite origin. His short-lived successor was Kashu Nadin Ahi, whose name means the Kassite god provides brothers, indicating that he also was a Kassite. So, though we identify it today as the second dynasty of the Sealand, it might as well be called the second Kassite dynasty of Babylon. In reality, these so-called kings may have been little more than tribal chieftains or warlords who claimed the kingship of Babylon and, 
at least according to two kingless, were accepted as the city's legitimate rulers by future generations. The next dynasty, according to Babylonian kingless, is known as the Bazi dynasty. And like the second dynasty of the Sealand, it had only three kings, Yulmash Shakin Shumi, Ninurta Kuduri Usar, and Shirikti Shukamuna. The name of the last king, Shirikti Shukamuna, means Gift of the God Shukamuna. Shukamuna was a Kassite god. The third dynasty of this era consisted of only one king, Mar Biti Apla Usar. Though he ruled for six years and had an Akkadian name, the Babylonian royal chronicle claims that he had Elamite ancestry. Mar Biti Apla Usar, a distant descendant of Elam, reigned six years. He was buried in Sargon's palace. One king, the dynasty of Elam, he reigned six years. Being of Elamite ancestry has led some scholars to believe that Mar Biti Apla Usar may have been a foreign conqueror, but there's no evidence of this. One should also remember that in cosmopolitan Babylon, along with the predominantly Akkadian-speaking population, there were many who could claim Elamite, Kassite, Chaldean, and Aramean ancestry. As for the fourth of these dynasties, known as Dynasty E, at 242 years, its kings reigned much longer than the other three combined. Scholars believe that these kings didn't all belong to the same family, and it's possible that they were even from different tribes and of different ethnicities. It's hard to determine just how far outside of the core cities of Babylon, Sippar, and Borsippa the writ of these rulers really went. Most of them were not very powerful, and it seems that Assyrian incursions into Babylonia were quite frequent. For example, around 900 BC, during the reign of Dynasty E's fourth ruler, Shamash Mudamik, the Assyrian king Adad-Nirari II claims in his annals to have essentially conquered Babylonia. The text reads, Adad-Nirari, conqueror of the entire land of Karduniash, who brought about the defeat of Shamash Mudamik, king of Karduniash, from Mount Yalman to the Diyala River. The region from the city of Lahiru to Ugal-Salu was added to the boundary of Assyria. I conquered the entire land of the city of Der. I brought back the cities of Arapa and Lubdu, fortresses of Karduniash, into the boundaries of Assyria. Conquering the entire land of Karduniash may have been an exaggeration since there's no evidence of Adad-Nirari or any other Assyrian king taking Babylon, let alone getting that far south. But the fact that he did seem to take the areas just mentioned without any counterattacks from the other side is an indication of how weak militarily the Babylonians were. One of the best known kings of the time period was Nabu Apla Idina, who ruled between 888 to 855 BC. While not the most powerful ruler, he at least didn't lose any territory to Assyria. 
His claim to fame today is for commissioning one of the most beautiful works of Babylonian art, the so-called Sun Tablet. The object depicts Nabu Aplaidina being led into the presence of the god Shamash in a style reminiscent of artwork from earlier periods of Babylonian history. Nabu Aplaidina's son, Marduk Zakir Shumi, succeeded him in 855 BC. Unlike other kings of Dynasty E, his name appears quite often in the archaeological record, especially in the annals and inscriptions of the Assyrian king, Shalmaneser III. We're told that Marduk Zakir Shumi's brother, Marduk Belusate, rose up in rebellion against him. In the civil war that followed, Shalmaneser went to the aid of Marduk Zakir Shumi and eventually killed the would be usurper. In an inscription, Shalmaneser tells us In the eighth year of my reign, Marduk Belusate, the younger brother, revolted against Marduk Zakir Shumi, king of Karduniash, and they divided the land in its entirety. In the ninth year of my reign, I marched against Akkad a second time. As for Marduk Belusate, the terrifying splendor of Ashur and Marduk overcame him, and he went up into the mountains to save his life. I pursued him. I cut down with the sword Marduk Belusate and the rebel army officers who were with him. While on the surface it may seem that Shalmaneser was just helping out a fellow king, in reality, his direct intervention in Babylonian affairs further fragmented the country by dividing up many of its elites into pro- and anti-Assyrian factions, which, in the not-too-distant future, would allow Assyria to dominate the country for over a century. Trouble occurred when Shalmaneser III's successor, Shamshiadad V, ascended the Assyrian throne in 823 BC. While initially on good terms with his southern neighbor, in 814 BC, he launched campaigns deep into Babylonia and captured Marduk Zakir Shumi's son and successor, Marduk Balasu Ikbi, near the city of Der. Two years later, Shamshiadad captured his successor, Baba Ahaidina, and had him deported to Assyria. While Shamshiadad and the Assyrians didn't outright stay in the country, their incursions into Babylonia had all but destroyed the power of the monarchy, and the leaders of many different factions within Babylonian society came to the forefront of politics. Babylonian Chronicle 47 states that there was no king in the country. This, though, was only partly true. There supposedly were kings that the Assyrians somewhat recognized, but most of them were Chaldean and not residing in the city of Babylon. Shamshiadad V's successor, Adad-Nirari III, claims that these men swore allegiance to him. All the kings of Chaldea became my vassals, and I imposed upon them in perpetuity tax and tribute. At Babylon, for Sippa and Kutha, they brought to me the remnant offerings of the gods Bel, Nabu, and Nergal. Though the Babylonian monarchy was able to eventually get back up on its feet, the Chaldean and Assyrian presence in the country's politics had become a permanent one. 
760 BC, Nabushuma Ishkun of the Bit Dakuru, a Chaldean tribe, was recognized as king of Babylon, but he seems to have had little real authority outside of the capital. In fact, there may have been an undeclared civil war going on at the time, as a document dated to the eighth year of his reign and attributed to the governor of Borsippa reports. Disorders, disturbances, revolt and turmoil occurred in Borsippa, the city of truth and justice. During the reign of King Nabushuma Ishkun, descendant of Dukuru, the Babylonians, the Borsippians, and the citizens of the town of Duteti on the bank of the Euphrates, all the Chaldeans, the Aramaeans, and the people of Dilbat wedded their weapons against one another and slew one another during many days. They also fought with the Borsippians over their fields. The situation had gotten so out of control that during the annual New Year's festival, where the statues of many city gods were brought to Babylon for celebrations, the statue of Nabu could not leave Borsippa to travel the short distance to the capital in order to take part in the festivities. Nabushuma Ishkun's successor, Nabu Nasir, better known as Nabu Nasser, fared no better, nor did his son. Their fate, and the turmoil that followed, is summed up in Babylonian Chronicle 16. The fourteenth year of his reign, Nabu Nasser became ill and went to his destiny in his palace. Nabu Nasser reigned fourteen years over Babylon. His son, Nabu Nadin Zeri, ascended the throne of Babylon. The second year of his reign, Nabu Nadin Zeri was killed during an insurrection. Nabu Nadin Zeri reigned two years over Babylon. Nabu Shuma Ukin, a governor and leader of the insurrection, ascended the throne. Nabu Shuma Ukin reigned one month and two days over Babylon. Mukin Zeri, descendant of Amukanu, removed him and took the throne. Mukin Zeri, whose full name was Nabu Mukin Zeri, was a Chaldean, but not one that the Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser III, particularly liked. For expansionist Assyria, an unstable Babylonia was both a threat and an opportunity. By then, Assyria and its vast empire was the sole superpower in the ancient Near East which was primarily due to the reforms of Tiglath-Pileser III. He did away with the nepotism that had plagued the Assyrian Empire and replaced it with a meritocracy whereby anyone, regardless of their national origin, could advance up the ranks. Thus, even traditional enemies, such as Aramaeans and Elamites, as long as they demonstrated their loyalty to the crown, could rise relatively quickly through the ranks of the Assyrian armed forces. With seemingly unlimited resources and manpower at his disposal, in 729 BC, Tiglath-Pileser III launched a full-scale invasion of Babylonia. Assyrian forces eventually surrounded Mukinzeri at a place called Shapia. Mukinzeri's death, which probably occurred in 728 BC, is mentioned in a letter to Tiglath-Pileser by one of his subordinates. To the king, my lord, your servant, Ashur Shalimani. Good health to the king, my lord.
We got together, stood in the presence of the Commander-in-Chief, and gave orders to one another. We arrived within the city gate and inflicted a defeat. Mukinzeri has been killed, and Shumuukin, his son, had also been killed. The city is conquered. The king, my lord, can be glad. With the death of Mukinzeri, Tiglath-Pileser III declared himself king of Babylon. This kicked off a century of direct Assyrian rule in Babylonia that would change the relationship between the two countries and their peoples forever. Tiglath-Pileser III's conquest of Babylonia was different than those of the Assyrian kings before him. Past rulers had sought to punish and plunder Babylon, while also seeking to influence regional politics. But Tiglath-Pileser was different. Instead of a conqueror, he presented himself as a liberator who had come to restore order and prevent the Chaldean and Aramean tribes from tearing the country apart. Babylonia was different than Assyria's other conquered territories. Despite often butting heads with Assyria politically, Babylon and many sites in Babylonia were places of deep cultural and religious significance for even the most patriotic Assyrians. Tiglath-Pileser couldn't simply just reduce it to another imperial possession. Instead, he gave it the status of a separate kingdom within the empire, with Tiglath-Pileser and not an Assyrian governor at its head. As the new king of Babylon, Tiglath-Pileser participated in the annual Babylonian New Year, or Akitu festival, where he took the hand of the statue of Marduk and paraded through the streets of the capital all with the blessings of Babylon's priests. When Tiglath-Pileser III died in 727 BC, his son, Ululeyu, who took the throne name Shalmaneser V, became king of both Assyria and Babylon. He, though, was more fixated on campaigns in the Levant and didn't spend much time in Babylon. During his absence, anti-Assyrian Chaldeans regrouped and launched new attacks against the Assyrian crown. The most successful at this was Marduk Aplaidina II. He actually was already a known figure to the Assyrians under Tiglath-Pileser III, who called him King of the Sealand. Marduk Aplaidina had taken advantage of Shalmaneser's absence to crown himself King of Babylon. Babylonian Chronicle 16 tells us, the fifth year of the reign of Shalmaneser, in the month of Tebetu, Shalmaneser went to his destiny. Shalmaneser reigned five years over Akkad and Assyria. In the month of Tebetu, the twelfth day, Sargon ascended the throne of Assyria. In the month of Nisanu, Marduk Aplaidina ascended the throne of Babylon. And so, around 721 BC, Sargon II, Shalmaneser V's brother, or perhaps half-brother, became king of Assyria, while Marduk Aplaidina II took the throne of Babylon. At the time, Assyria was clearly at its height, and, despite some internal troubles within the Assyrian royal family, had more than enough resources to overrun any rebellions in Babylonia. Marduk Aplaidina II was not alone. 
The kings of Elam also feared Assyria's reach into their own territories, and finding common cause with Marduk Apla Edina, they allied with him. Babylonian Chronicle 16 tells us The second year of the reign of Marduk Apla Edina, King Humban Nikash of Elam joined battle with King Sargon of Assyria in the district of Der. He brought about Assyria's withdrawal and inflicted a crushing defeat on it. Marduk-Apla-Edina, who had gone with his army to aid the king of Elam, did not join the battle in time and withdrew. After his defeat, Sargon withdrew from Babylonia and focused his efforts on subduing other regions, most notably parts of the Levant and Assyria's great rival to the north, the kingdom of Urartu, which by 714 BC he had more or less subdued. The absence of Assyrian troops in Babylonia allowed Marduk Apla Edina II to govern rather effectively, and documents indicate that there was a general increase in economic activity throughout the region during his years on the throne. Temples were restored, debts cancelled, and major tax exemptions were granted to the cities of Babylon and Borsippa. The Babylonian propaganda of the time extolled Marduk Apla Edina's many virtues and claimed that he had been personally chosen by Marduk to lead the people. An example of one such text reads as follows. At that time, the great lord, the god Marduk, had become angry with the land of Akkad, and the evil enemy, the Assyrians, exercised dominion over Akkad. The time had arrived, and the great god Marduk made peace with the land of Akkad, with which he had gotten angry. He looked favorably upon Marduk Apla Edina, king of Babylon, a prince who venerates him, to whom he extended his hand, the true heir, eldest son of Eriba Marduk, king of Babylon, the one who made firm the foundation of the land, duly raised him up to the shepherdship of the land of Sumer and Akkad, and said from his own mouth, This is indeed the shepherd, the one who will gather the scattered people. However, in the eyes of Sargon II of Assyria, Marduk Apleidina was not a king, but a usurper. After his Levantine and Urartrian campaigns had ceased, he turned his gaze back to Babylon to take out Marduk Apleidina once and for all. Like Marduk Apleidina, Sargon launched a propaganda campaign of his own. He knew that many Akkadian-speaking Babylonians were wary of Chaldeans, the majority of whom they considered to have been descendants of uninvited invaders who had caused trouble in their historically sacred land. Assyrian propaganda took advantage of such sentiments to discredit Marduk Apleidina, who himself was a Chaldean from the clan of Bityakin. In one text, Sargon calls him a descendant of Yakin, a Chaldean, and the likeness of a demon. In another, Sargon renounced his Chaldean rival in the following way. Twelve years he, Marduk Apleidina, ruled and governed Babylon against the will of the gods. Marduk, the great lord, saw the evil deeds of the Chaldean whom he despised, and the taking away of his royal scepter and throne was established on his lips. 
He, Marduk, chose me, Sargon, the reverend king, among all kings, and he justly appointed me. He selected me in the land of Sumer and Akkad. In order to undermine the Chaldean, the evil enemy, he strengthened my weapons. On the orders of Marduk, my great lord, I prepared the weaponry, pitched my camp, and ordered my soldiers to march against the evil Chaldean. To survive the wrath of Sargon II and the Assyrian military machine, Marduk Apleidina knew that he needed more allies. The Elamite kings, who themselves were threatened by an expansionist Assyria on their doorstep, would always support him, but they were not enough. And so, Marduk Apleidina sent emissaries to all of the kingdoms and disaffected vassal states who he thought could help him in his struggle against Sargon. Even the Hebrew Bible's Book of Isaiah mentions that Marduk Apleidina, whose name appears as Merodach Baladin, sent an emissary to King Hezekiah of Judah. In 710 BC, Sargon and his forces easily marched into northern Babylonia and set up their base near the city of Kish, which was just a short distance from Babylon itself. Whether it was an attempt to save the city from the impending Assyrian onslaught, or just out of plain fear, Marduk Apleidina fled the capital, and shortly thereafter, both Babylon and Borsippa surrendered to Sargon. The following year, Sargon, like his father Tiglath-Pileser III had done before him, led the great statue of Marduk in the Akidu festival's annual procession, an act that officially made him king of Babylon. The chase for Marduk Apleidina was on. Eventually, he was found hiding in his heavily fortified hometown of Dur-Yakin, which Sargon held under siege for two years. Finally, in 707 BC, the Assyrians captured Duryakin and put it to the torch. They then rounded up over 100,000 Chaldeans and deported them to distant parts of the Assyrian Empire. As for Marduk Apleidina, it's recorded that he fled to Elam. Babylon was now firmly back in the hands of Sargon II, who took a liking to the city and spent most of his time there between the years 710 to 707 BC. During that time, he poured funds into building up the city and other areas of Babylonia, worshipped Marduk, and attended the Akitu festival every year. In 705 BC, in what's today south-central Anatolia, Sargon was killed in battle, and his slain body was never recovered, let alone given a proper burial with all of the necessary funeral rites. This actually was quite serious, because according to Assyrian belief, it meant that he was cursed to wander the world as a restless ghost that would never be at peace a fate considered to be worse than death. It was an extremely bad omen that many interpreted as a sign that the god Asher had been displeased with Sargon's seemingly excessive devotion to Marduk and Babylon. 
Sargon II's son and successor, Sennacherib, took this message to heart. When he ascended the throne in 704 BC, he made sure to reassert the place of Asher as the greatest of Mesopotamia's many gods. Around the same time, challenges to Assyrian rule in Babylon were becoming more frequent. In 703 BC, a usurper who went by the name Marduk-Zakir-Shumi II declared himself to be king of Babylon. His time in office was short, as kinglists say that he ruled for only a month. That same year, Marduk Apla Idina II returned from Elam to once again claim the kingship of Babylon. He just wouldn't go away, nor give up. Sennacherib wasted no time and marched with a great army into Babylonia to deal with the man who had by now become a constant menace. In his royal annals, Sennacherib tells us, On my first campaign, I brought about the defeat of Marduk Apleidina, king of Karduniash, together with the troops of Elam, his allies on the plain of Kish. In the midst of that battle, he abandoned his camp, fled alone, and saved his life. I seized the chariots, horses, wagons, and mules that he had abandoned in the thick of battle. I joyfully entered his palace, which is in Babylon. Then I opened his treasury and brought out gold, silver, gold and silver utensils, precious stones, all kinds of possessions and property without number, a substantial tribute, together with his palace women, courtiers, attendants, male singers, female singers, all of the craftsmen, as many as there were, and his palace attendants, and I counted them as booty. Defeated once again, Marduk Apleidina fled back to the Chaldean strongholds in the southern marshes to avoid capture. Sennacherib ventured himself into southern Babylonia and plundered many predominantly Chaldean towns in an effort to get them to turn him in, but to no avail. He then took the more drastic measure of purging great metropolises such as Uruk, Nippur, Kish, Kutta, and Sippar of most of their Chaldean and Aramean citizens, which was a staggering number. Sennacherib claims that he deported at least 280,000 of these prisoners to other parts of Assyria, along with countless animals. He was taking no chances and was determined to succeed where his father had failed. Fighting continued, with Marduk Apleidina launching small raids with Elamite support for a few more years, until 700 BC, when Sennacherib smashed any remaining Chaldean towns and fortresses that offered the Chaldean king shelter. Though he was never caught, Marduk Apleidina is reported to have died a few years later, most likely in exile. After stamping out all resistance for the time being, Sennacherib appointed a Babylonian, and not an Assyrian, to be his choice for the position of King of Babylon. By his own account, the man he put on the throne, Bel-Ibni, was an Assyrian puppet, whom he described as someone 
who had grown up like a young puppy in my palace. However, Bel Ibni did come from a very established and influential Babylonian family, and Sennacherib hoped that he would be acceptable to the Babylonians since he was one of their own and didn't have any loyalties to the Chaldeans or Arameans. Bel Ibni apparently wasn't up to the task because, as Chronicle 16 states, Sennacherib replaced him after just three years. The third year of the reign of Bel Ibni, Sennacherib went down into Akkad and sacked Akkad. He took Bel Ibni and his nobles into exile in Assyria. Bel Ibni reigned three years over Babylon. Sennacherib made his son, Ashurnadin Shumi, ascend the throne of Babylon. According to the Assyrian synchronistic history, Bel Ibni may have been removed due to a revolt that had broken out in Babylon, though we don't know if Bel Ibni orchestrated the rebellion or just failed to contain it. Regardless of Bel Ibni's involvement, Sennacherib's son, Ashurnadin Shumi, would no doubt be loyal to Assyria. For five years between 699 to 694 BC, there seems to have been peace and stability within the walls of Babylon. But outside the capital, there was still unrest, especially in the southern marshlands. Though Marduk Aplaidina was gone, many of his most fervent supporters had never completely abandoned their anti-Assyrian activities. They were still being supported by elements from within Elam, and several of them had also sought refuge there. Perhaps the solution to the problem was to cut off aid from Elam to the Chaldean and Babylonian rebels opposing Assyrian rule. This was extremely difficult to do because the border with Elam was long and porous, especially in the south where the Assyrians were at their weakest and anything short of a small army could get through with a very little chance of being detected. Sennacherib decided to change his strategy. Instead of constantly being on the defensive and fighting against Elamite proxies in Babylonia, he would take the war into Elam. And so, in 694 BC, Sennacherib assembled a great invasion fleet and sailed it along the Gulf to the shores of southern Elam, where his troops unloaded and then gradually moved north towards Susa, the seat of Elam's king, Halushu in Shushinak. Though Sennacherib claims that his men ravaged parts of southern Elam and plundered its cities and towns, the attack proved to be a great strategic blunder. Actually, more like catastrophic. According to Babylonian Chronicle 16, King Helushu in Shushinak of Elam went to Akkad. At the end of the month of Tashritu, he entered Sippar and massacred the inhabitants. The god Shamash did not leave the Ibabar. Asher Nadim Shumi was captured and deported to Elam. Asher Nadim Shumi reigned six years over Babylon. The king of Elam made Nurgal Ushizeb ascend the throne of Babylon. He brought about the retreat of Assyria. Though the chronicle says that Sennacherib's son, Asher Nadim Shumi, had simply been captured, a letter found in the Assyrian archives goes into more detail 
and states that he was actually handed over to the Elamites by the Babylonians themselves. What exactly happened to Asher Nadim Shumi isn't stated, but it's likely that he was eventually executed. If the Babylonians and their Elamite allies thought that they'd taught Sennacherib a lesson, they were gravely mistaken. With the current Elamite incursion into Babylonia and the alleged murder of his son, Sennacherib vowed that he would show his enemies no mercy. Nergulushizeb left Babylon with an Elamite-backed army to face Sennacherib in 693 BC but he was eventually defeated and captured by the Assyrian army. In an inscription from the Assyrian capital of Nineveh, Sennacherib tells us what his sentence for treason was. I captured the king of Babylon alive, threw him in a neckstock and fetters, and brought him before me. At the citadel gate of Nineveh, I bound him with a bear. Despite taking out Nergalushizeb, Sennacherib could not solidify his hold over the city of Babylon, and soon new men claiming to be kings rose up to oppose him, including a Chaldean who went by the name Mushizib Marduk. Chronicles, texts, and even Sennacherib's own inscriptions state that he won a few battles against the Assyrians. Despite their successes in denying Sennacherib total victory, the Babylonians knew that they couldn't hold off the Assyrians forever, as too did the rulers and elites of Elam, who themselves were in constant power struggles with each other. To help ensure that the Elamites would still remain by their side, the Babylonians sent all of the silver and gold from the treasury of the Isagila, that is, the great temple of Marduk, to the Elamite king as a sort of down payment for his support. This shows that the Babylonians had become desperate. The new Elamite king, Humban Namena III, kept faith with Mushizib Marduk and mustered an army that consisted of people from all over Elam and other parts of southwestern Iran, including the kingdom of Ilipi and Parsuash. There were also Aramean and, of course, Chaldean tribes who joined his forces. Even one of the late Marduk Aplaidina's sons joined the alliance as they all marched towards Babylon where they were to meet up with Mushizib Marduk and his forces to take on Sennacherib and Assyria. It's here that we have differing accounts of what happened. The Babylonians in their chronicle claimed that their side, led by Humban Namena III, met the Assyrians in battle at a place called Hulule and forced them to withdraw. Sennacherib's account is just the opposite, and he rather poetically describes how he decisively defeated Humban Namena and Mushizib Marduk, the latter who fled to Babylon to hide behind the city's walls. With regard to these two accounts of the battle and its result, it would seem that Sennacherib's is closer to the truth due to what we know happened next. Ever since he had become king of Assyria, 14 years earlier, controlling Babylonia had been a major challenge for Sennacherib. Even when he had controlled the city of Babylon, there were always rebels such as Marduk Aplaidina and the Chaldean tribes of the south who stymied his efforts to dominate the entire country. 
while the Elamites had played their part, it was the Babylonians who ultimately allied with them against the Assyrians. And it was also they who extradited his son, Ashur Nadim Shumi, to Elam for what most believe was an automatic death sentence. By now, Sennacherib hated Babylon and all who called themselves Babylonians. With perhaps the same army he commanded against his enemies at Halule, Sennacherib surrounded Babylon and waited for Mashizub Marduk, the Elamite-backed king of Babylon, to capitulate. Several months went by, but the city did not surrender despite the fact that Babylon's residents were rapidly running out of food. A Babylonian document dated to the summer of 690 BC records just how desperate the situation had become. In the reign of Mushizib Marduk, king of Babylon, there was siege, famine, hunger, starvation, and hard times in the land. Everything had changed and become non-existent. One shekel of silver was worth two liters of barley. The city gates were locked and there was no exit in all four directions. The corpses of people filled the squares of Babylon because there was no one to bury them. After a 15-month siege, in the fall of 689 BC, the Assyrians broke through Babylon's defenses and took the city. What happened next, according to Sennacherib's own inscriptions, was a vengeful bloodbath. I moved swiftly against Babylon, whose destruction I strove for, and like the onset of a storm, I attacked. Like a mist, I enveloped it. I filled the city with their corpses. Mushizib Marduk, king of Babylon, together with his family, I carried off alive to my country. The property of that city, silver, gold, precious stones, goods, possessions, I delivered into the hands of my people, and they made it their own. The gods that dwell inside, the hands of my people acquired them, and they broke them up, and they took their goods and property. The city and its houses, from its foundations to its parapets, I swept away, I demolished, I burned with fire. The wall and the outer wall, the temples and the gods, the ziggurat of mud brick and earth, as many as there were, I tore down and deposited them into the Aratu Canal. In the midst of that city, I dug ditches and flooded its ground with water. The form of its foundations I destroyed, and I caused its devastation to exceed that of any flood, so that in later days, the ground of that city, its temples, its gods, would be forgotten. Others had also conquered and sacked Babylon, but none seemed to have deliberately caused as much damage and gloat about it as Sennacherib. As for Mushizib Marduk and his family, they were deported to Nineveh, and though their exact fate is never mentioned, one can safely assume that it wasn't good. 
Later generations of Babylonians would never forget Sennacherib's cruelty and wanton destruction of their glorious city, which for them was the center of the world. Unlike his three predecessors, he never took the title King of Babylon, nor did he make any plans to rebuild the city and the sacred Isagila. In fact, he wanted its prestige and influence to diminish. One of the ways he did this was to take the Babylonian epic Enuma Elish and make a new official version where the national Assyrian god Ashur replaced Marduk. During the last years of Sennacherib's reign, the situation in the Assyrian capital had become tense politically. In 683 BC, Sennacherib's eldest son and successor, Urdu-Mulisi, was replaced as crown prince by one of his other sons, Isarhaddon. Not surprisingly, Urdu-Mulisi and his supporters resented the decision and pressured Sennacherib to reverse it. When Sennacherib didn't change the status of his successor, Urdu-Mulisi staged a coup and assassinated his father in a temple in Nineveh. A brief civil war broke out in which Isarhaddon ultimately was victorious and two months later installed as the new king of Assyria. Isarhaddon had much to be grateful for, but also much to think about. His two predecessors had suffered violent deaths, and he took them as warnings for himself. His grandfather Sargon II had been too pro-Babylon and perhaps worshipped Marduk excessively, while his father Sennacherib did just the opposite by desecrating the city and its great shrine to Marduk. Taking a more balanced approach, Isarhaddon ordered the rebuilding and resettlement of Babylon, as well as the reconstruction of the Isagila, while also making sure not to neglect or offend Assyria's patron deity, Asher. One of the people that Isarhaddon recruited to help with the rebuilding of Babylon was its new governor, Ubaru. In one of his letters to Isarhaddon, Ubaru praises him for all that he's done for the city. To the king, my lord, your servant, Ubaru, the governor of Babylon. May the gods Nabu and Marduk bless the king. Now I pray every day to the god Marduk and the goddess Sarpanitu for the life of the king, my lord. I have entered Babylon. The people of Babylon welcome me, and they bless the king every day, saying, He is the one who returned Babylon's captives and booty. Also, the chiefs of Chaldea, from Sippar to the mouth of the sea, bless the king, saying, he is the one who resettled Babylon. All the lands are happy before the king, my lord. By almost all accounts, Isarhaddon had treated Babylon and its population well. But in spite of this, there were still pockets of resistance to Assyrian rule, most notably in the Chaldean south. Already towards the beginning of his reign in 680 BC, one of Marduk Aplaidina II's sons, named Zer Kitileshir, attacked the city of Ur, but failed to take it. When the Assyrian army showed up, he fled to Elam, but in a most unusual turn of events, instead of being granted asylum there, he was put to death. 
The reason for this is unknown, but Elam's rulers may have been wary of keeping a wanted fugitive and had no interest in, or perhaps couldn't risk, another armed conflict with Assyria, which at this time was the most powerful it had ever been. After the murder of Zerkiti Lashir, his brother, Naid Marduk, fled from Elam and sought refuge in Assyria. Isarhaddon not only pardoned him, but also appointed him to the position of governor of the Sealand province, the very same area that his brother had attacked a year or two before. Clearly, Isarhaddon was much more merciful than his father. However, another son of the legendary Marduk Aplaidina II, a certain Nabu Ushalim, attacked the Sealand province with help from Elam, but the specifics of what happened afterward are lost. According to Babylonian Chronicle 16, though, an Elamite army led by King Humban Haltish II invaded Babylonia in 675 BC and slaughtered many of the residents of the city of Sippar. Even here, Isarhaddon's response was measured, for soon after the attack, Humban Haltish died, and his brother, Urtak, took over and immediately sued for peace with Assyria. As a gesture of goodwill, he's said to have given back a few of the sacred images that had, at some earlier time, been looted from the old Akkadian capital of Agade. The two kings later signed a peace treaty, the details of which are recorded in a letter discovered in the archives of Nineveh. It states the following. Having listened to one another, the king of Elam and the king of Assyria have made peace with one another at Marduk's command and become treaty partners. One of Isarhaddon's final decisions as king would end up being very costly, both for Assyria and Babylonia. Like his father Sennacherib, Isarhaddon broke with tradition and made one of his younger sons, Ashurbanipal, crown prince and the future king of Assyria after his death, while making the eldest son, Shamashumu'ukin, the future king of Babylon. It was a most unusual decision, as the position of king of Assyria generally went to the eldest son, who was almost always the crown prince. Perhaps Isarhaddon thought that it would avoid another civil war, like the brief one that occurred after his father's death. He may have also felt that Ashurbanipal's talents were better suited to be king of Assyria's vast empire. We'll probably never really know just why Isarhaddon made such arrangements, but the decision ended up tearing Assyria and Babylonia apart. After Isarhaddon's death in 669 BC, Zakutu, the queen mother, made Shamashumu'ukin swear a formal oath of loyalty to his younger brother, Ashurbanipal. Though he held the prestigious title of King of Babylon, Shamashumu'ukin became little more than a figurehead, with barely any power to govern his own kingdom. In many letters from the archives of Nineveh, officials from Babylonia bypassed Shamashumu'ukin and wrote directly to Ashurbanipal with regard to both domestic and international affairs. For example, the governor of the city of Ur, who technically should have recognized the king of Babylon as his immediate overlord, instead wrote inscriptions that acknowledged Ashurbanipal 
but not Shamash Shumu'uken. When it came to the renovation of temples and religious buildings in Borsippa, Sippar, Nippur, Uruk, and even the Isagila in Babylon itself, it was Ashurbanipal who was credited with their restoration, and not Shamash Shumu'uken. While there are inscriptions attributed to Shamash Shumu'uken on a few buildings, they pale in comparison to the number commissioned by Ashurbanipal, who also had spies at the Babylonian court to monitor his older brother's every move. Though there was tension between the two brothers, Babylonia during the years 669 to 652 BC was overall relatively calm, the exception being in 664 BC when the Elamite king Urtak broke the treaty he had signed with Isarhaddon and invaded Babylonia. His attack was eventually repelled by the Assyrian army, something which Ashurbanipal made sure to take credit for. It's not surprising then that Shamash Shumu'ukin resented his brother, and in 652 BC led a rebellion against Ashurbanipal, which lasted for four years. Babylonian Chronicle 20 tells us, In the month of Tebetu, the 19th day, Assyria and Akkad went to war. Slipping away from the enemy, the king returned to Babylon. In the month of Adaru, the 27th day, the army of Assyria and the army of Akkad joined battle at Hiritu. The army of Akkad stopped fighting, and a crushing defeat was inflicted on it. A state of war was prolonged. There was a succession of battles. That being said, Shamashumu'ukin still had a lot of support from many factions who were discontent with Assyrian rule. They all thought that an independent Babylon, even within Assyrian as king, was much better than one that was forever subservient to Assyria. The Elamites also joined Shamashumu'ukin and supported him with supplies, weapons, and fighting men. This anti-Assyrian coalition, like many others before it, in the end proved to be inadequate against Ashurbanipal's Assyrian war machine, and by 648 BC, his troops had surrounded the city of Babylon, and soon after that, sacked the city. Shamashumu'ukin is believed to have died by being burned alive in his palace. The death of Shamashumu'ukin did not bring about an end to the war. Ashurbanipal's troops went on several other campaigns to punish anyone who had supported his brother's rebellion by putting them to the sword. While this included many groups of Chaldeans and Arameans, the greatest collective punishment was reserved for the Elamites, who had consistently supported anti-Assyrian factions in Babylonia for nearly a century. In several inscriptions found on the walls of his palace at Nineveh, Ashurbanipal bragged about how he looted the cities of Elam, raised the great and ancient Elamite city of Susa to the ground, trampled on the bones of Elam's dead kings, and sowed the land with salt so that nothing could grow there. After that, there were few rebel leaders and pockets of resistance left in Babylonia of any real significance. Ashurbanipal had essentially destroyed them all. When Ashurbanipal died around the year 630 BC, he left his young heir, 
Asher Etil Ilani in a Syrian empire that was ostensibly at its height. But Asher Etil Ilani was too young to rule on his own, and so for a while, the chief eunuch ruled as regent before usurping the throne for himself around 626 or 625 BC. He only lasted for a few months before being replaced by Sin Shara Ishkun, another one of Ashurbanipal's sons. Big things were also happening in Babylon at around the same time. In 627 BC, Assyria's puppet king of Babylon, Kandulanu, died, leaving the Babylonian throne unoccupied. There was also a rising Babylonian leader named Nabu Apla Usar, who was causing trouble for the Assyrians. He's better known as Nabopolassar. Babylonian Chronicle 21 tells us that fighting broke out between the Assyrians and Babylonians, and by the end of the year, specifically on the 26th of the month of Arasamnu, which on the Gregorian calendar would be November 23rd, 626 BC, Nabopolassar ascended the throne of Babylon to become its new king. This started the era that scholars call the Neo-Babylonian period. There's some debate about the details of Nabopolassar's early life. The dynasty that he founded is sometimes referred to as the Chaldean dynasty, but there's no proof that Nabopolassar himself was a Chaldean. He may have been from Uruk because he sought refuge there when the Assyrians were pursuing him in the south. According to Nabopolassar's own words, he was of humble origins, and in one inscription calls himself the son of nobody. Part of the text of this inscription tells us the following. When I was young, although I was the son of nobody, I constantly sought the sanctuaries of my lords, the gods, Nabu and Marduk. My mind was preoccupied with the establishment of their prescriptions and the complete performance of their rituals. My attention was directed at justice and equity. The god Marduk, the lord who fathoms the hearts of the gods of heaven and the netherworld, who constantly observes the conducts of mankind, perceived my inner thoughts and elevated me, the servant who was anonymous among the people, to a high status in the country in which I was born. He called me to the lordship over the country and the people. He caused a benevolent, protective spirit to walk at my side. He let me succeed in everything I undertook. He caused the god Nurgle, the strongest among the gods, to march at my side. He slew my foes, felled my enemies. The Assyrians, who had ruled Akkad because of divine anger and had, with their heavy yoke, oppressed the inhabitants of the country, I, the weak one, the powerless one, who constantly seeks the Lord of Lords, with the mighty strength of the gods Nabu and Marduk, my lords, I removed them from Akkad and caused the Babylonians to throw off their yoke. By 620 BC, Nabopolassar was likely in control of most, if not all, of Babylonia. Still, fighting between Babylon and Assyria raged on, with most new clashes resulting in stalemates. This in the long run was quite worrisome for Nabopolassar. 
As we've seen several times in the past, the Assyrians had often been kicked out of Babylonia only to return again with a vengeance. The reality was that Assyria would always remain an existential threat, and though Nabopolassar also had the support of most of the Chaldean and Aramean tribes, history had proved that such an alliance was still not enough to keep the Assyrians out. The Assyrians' often brutal style of rule had made them extremely unpopular with many peoples of the ancient Near East, and it just so happened that the king from one of these groups was also thinking along the same lines as Nabopolassar. This man was Sayasharis, king of the Medes. The Medes were an Iranic people whose land, Media, was primarily in the Zagros Mountains and parts of the nearby Iranian Plateau to the east. Like the Babylonians, they too had suffered much at the hands of various Assyrian kings, and wanted to see an end to Assyrian incursions into their homeland. Around 616 BC, Nabopolassar and Sayasharis made a pact with the clear objective of eliminating Assyrian meddling and influence from their respective countries once and for all. That same year, Nabopolassar and his men pushed further into Assyria than ever before and obtained an important victory near the city of Arapa before laying siege to Asher, the very heart and soul of Assyria. The Assyrians counterattacked and were able to push Nabopolassar back, but not without suffering heavy losses. It was shortly after this that Sayasharis and the Medes entered the Assyrian heartland from the east, fighting their way to Arapa and finally taking the city. By 614 BC, they had reached Asher. This time though, the city fell, with the Medes raising it to the ground. Shortly after the destruction of Asher, Nabopolassar and the main Babylonian army arrived at the once great city's burning ruins to meet Sayasharis and their Median allies face to face. There, the two kings made a formal alliance before heading their separate ways. They met again in the summer of 612 BC, when the two sides joined forces to take out the Assyrian capital of Nineveh, at that time perhaps the largest, wealthiest, and most beautiful city in the world. After a three-month siege, Nineveh fell, and the Babylonians and Medes wasted no time looting and tearing the city apart. In the street battles that followed, the Assyrian king, Sinshara Ishkun, was killed. The war, though, was still not over. Despite losing the major centers of their homeland, Remnants of the Assyrian Empire fought on in the west and rallied around a new king, Ashurubalit II. The Assyrians continued to fight, but eventually lost to the Babylonian Median coalition, and with the fall of the last Assyrian stronghold of Haran in 610 BC, the Assyrian Empire formally came to an end. For the next few years, Nabopolassar campaigned in the Levant around Carchemish, which the Egyptians had also sought to control after the fall of Assyria. In 605 BC, his son, Crown Prince Nebuchadnezzar, 
when a decisive battle against the Egyptians that allowed the Babylonians to essentially move forward and take nearly the entire eastern Mediterranean coast. Shortly after this, Nabopolassar died, and his son was crowned as Nebuchadnezzar II of Babylon. Nabopolassar was arguably one of the greatest Babylonian kings of all time. He was a warrior, a just ruler, and loved his country more than anything. Even at the height of his power, he remained relatively humble for a ruler who had accomplished so much. In perhaps what was one of his final inscriptions, he gives his future successors some pretty solid advice. Any king, at any time, whether a son or a grandson who will succeed me and whose name Marduk will call to exert rulership of the country, do not be concerned with feats of might and power. Seek the sanctuaries of Nabu and Marduk and let them slay your enemies. The Lord Marduk examines utterances and scrutinizes the heart. He who is loyal to Marduk, his foundations will endure. He who is loyal to the son of Marduk will last for eternity. That successor was Nebuchadnezzar II, who spent the next few years conquering areas of the old Assyrian Empire in the Levant that refused to recognize him as their new overlord. Most of the former Assyrian provinces that the Babylonians claimed in the west fell into line rather quickly. As for them, it was just a change in management at the top. It was in the southern Levant that Nebuchadnezzar encountered the stiffest resistance. Babylonian chronicles from the year 604 BC report that Nebuchadnezzar marched against the city of Ashkelon, captured its king, and then plundered the city before raising it to the ground which archaeologists have more or less confirmed. The most famous kingdom to suffer Nebuchadnezzar's wrath was the kingdom of Judah. In 601 BC, Judah's king, Jehoiakim, switched his allegiance from Babylon to Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar's response came a few years later, in 598 or 597 BC, with a full-fledged assault on the Judean capital of Jerusalem an event that's recorded not only in the Hebrew Bible, but also in Babylonian Chronicle 24, the latter which reads, The seventh year of Nebuchadnezzar, in the month of Kislimu, the king of Akkad mustered his troops, marched to the Levant, and set up his quarters facing the city of Judah. In the month of Adaru, the second day, he took the city and captured the king. He installed there a king of his choice. He collected its massive tribute and went back to Babylon. However, a few years later, that new king of Judah, Zedekiah, refused to pay tribute to Nebuchadnezzar, which forced the Babylonian king to venture back west yet again to punish him. Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians, who after looting it of all its treasures, raised the city and its great temple to the ground. Most of the survivors were deported to Babylonia. With such conquests came ample sums of loot and treasure, not to mention valuable resources such as cedar wood and rare minerals. 
These were used for Nebuchadnezzar's monumental building programs that eventually transformed Babylon into once again the world's most beautiful city. Though there's little evidence of the famous Hanging Gardens, which many believe may have actually been in Nineveh, plenty of textual information has been found detailing all of the new and refurbished temples, palaces, public spaces, parks, broad avenues, massive gates, towers, and defensive walls that Nebuchadnezzar II commissioned. In one of his seemingly countless inscriptions, Nebuchadnezzar provides some details as to how active he was in his city's planning and renovation. The street of Babylon having become increasingly lower, I pulled down the gates and relayed their foundations at the water table with asphalt and bricks. I had them remade of bricks with blue stone, on which wonderful bulls and dragons were depicted. I covered their roofs by laying majestic cedars lengthwise over them. I fixed doors of cedar wood trimmed with bronze in all the gates. I placed wild bulls and ferocious dragons in the gateways and thus adorned them with luxurious splendor so that mankind might gaze on them in wonder. Similar improvements were made in cities such as Borsippa, Sippar, and Uruk, just to name a few. It was a new, golden age for Babylon and Babylonia. Perhaps only during the reign of Hammurabi, nearly 1200 years prior, had Babylon and the surrounding areas enjoyed so much prosperity. But like with Hammurabi and the First Dynasty, Nebuchadnezzar's heirs were not as charismatic nor as capable as he was. And shortly after the great king's death, the decline of what would be Babylonia's last native dynasty began to gain momentum. Nebuchadnezzar died in October of 562 BC and was succeeded by his son, Amel Marduk, who ruled for just two years. There are few texts from his reign, but later kings in their inscriptions described him as being rather incompetent. That, though, could just have been propaganda, because he was killed by his brother-in-law, Neriglisar, who then seized the throne for himself and reigned for four years. During that time, Neriglisar campaigned in southern Anatolia and also claimed to have crossed into the kingdom of Lydia. He died shortly after his return to Babylon, and was succeeded by his son, Labashi Marduk, who only reigned for a few weeks before he himself was ousted and replaced by the man who would become Babylon's last native king, Nabonidus. Though Nabonidus may have manipulated his way into becoming the next ruler of Babylon, once he became king, he seems to have had little interest in actually doing the job. Instead of managing the Neo-Babylonian Empire, he went on pilgrimages and spiritual retreats for the sole purpose of worshipping the moon god, Sin. In fact, Nabonidus was so focused on this that he appointed his son, Belshara-Usar, better known as Belshazzar, to rule as regent while he was away which according to Babylonian chronicles and other documents, was quite often. In the spring of his third year as king, or 553 BC, 
Nabonidus went on a campaign that took him into northern Arabia, where he ended up at the oasis of Tema. Using the town as a base, Nabonidus claims he spent ten years there, worshipping Sin, and living a rather monastic life for a king. This though meant that he couldn't be in the capital to perform all of the religious duties that a king of Babylon was obliged to do. The so-called Nabonidus Chronicle mentions his absence from the Akitu festival several years in a row. The ninth year, Nabonidus, the king, stayed in Tema. The prince, the officers, and the army were in Akkad. The month of Nisan, the king did not go to Babylon. Nabu did not go to Babylon. Bel did not go out. The New Year's festival was not celebrated. The tenth year, the king stayed in Tema. The prince, the officers, and his army were in Akkad. In the month of Nisan, the king did not go to Babylon. Nabu did not go to Babylon. Bel did not go out. The New Year's festival was not celebrated. The eleventh year, the king stayed in Tema. The prince, the officers, and his army. Well, by now, you probably know the rest. For the Babylonian priesthood, Nabonidus' devotion to sin was clearly becoming a problem. During Nabonidus' years in Tema, important events were occurring that would alter the trajectory of the region as we know it. Babylon's neighbor and ally to the east, the Median Empire, went through a regime change in Nabonidus' sixth year, when in 550 BC, the relatively unknown Cyrus II, king of Anshan, overthrew his overlord, the Median king, Astyages. This made Cyrus the ruler of a new, united Persian-Median empire. But he was the new kid on the block, and hadn't really been tested by the greater powers of Lydia, Egypt, and of course, Babylon. And so, taking advantage of the situation, Croesus, the wealthy king of Lydia, invaded the former Median territories in the west that now belonged to Cyrus and the Persian Empire. Cyrus, though, was undeterred and marched his troops into what's now central Anatolia to meet Croesus and the Lydians in battle. He eventually defeated them and chased them up to the gates of the Lydian capital, Sardis. The Persians held the city under siege for about three weeks, until its defensive walls were scaled. After that, the Persians captured Sardis and Lydia became part of the now-expanding Persian Empire that was led by the man the world today knows as Cyrus the Great. According to the Greek historian and traveler Herodotus, the Lydians and Babylonians had made an alliance against Cyrus. Croesus was counting on Nabonidus, or at least Belshazzar, to send him aid and reinforcements. But Cyrus had arrived and taken the Lydian capital of Sardis before that could happen. In 543 BC, Nabonidus hastily returned to the capital and ordered that the statues of the gods and goddesses from other sanctuaries throughout the realm be brought to Babylon for safekeeping. 
The reason for this was because he expected Cyrus to invade Babylonia. After a battle near the city of Opus on the Tigris River, where he encountered some resistance, Cyrus made his way towards Babylon, where a very unpopular Nabonidus was bracing for a long siege. In an interesting turn of events, the Babylonian governor of the province of Gutium defected to the Persian side and marched with his men, alongside Cyrus, to Babylon. According to the so-called Nabonidus Chronicle, the Persians had little trouble taking the city. In the month Tashritu, on the 14th day, Sippar was captured without battle. Nabonidus fled. On the 16th day, Gubaru, governor of Gutium, and the army of Cyrus, without a battle, entered Babylon. Afterwards, after Nabonidus retreated, he was captured in Babylon. Interruption of the rites in Isagila or the temples, there was none, and no date was missed. On the third day of the month, Arasamnu, Cyrus entered Babylon. They filled the Haru vessels in his presence. Peace was imposed on the city. The proclamation of Cyrus was read to all of Babylon. According to the historian Berossus, who wrote a history of Babylon in Greek, Cyrus had Nabonidus exiled to Karmania, today in the province of Kerman in southeastern Iran. Another tradition maintains that he was appointed as an advisor to the new king. The Babylonian Chronicles, later Greek historians, the books of the Hebrew Bible, even Cyrus's own words from the now famous Cyrus Cylinder state that the Persian king was well received by the local population and, like many before him, proudly held the title of King of Babylon. Despite this, something was different. As we've seen throughout this program, there have been many kings of Babylon and Babylonia, and not all of them were native to the region. Though the city existed as far back as the days of the Sumerians, the first independent, historical dynasty of Babylon was founded by an Amorite chieftain, while Babylonia's longest reigning royal house was of distinctly Kassite origin. In the past, there had also been those of Hurrian, Aramean, Chaldean, and Elamite origin who settled in the fabled lands of Sumer and Akkad. But often, within a generation or two, their descendants had given up their mother tongues for Akkadian, worshipped the local gods of the land as their own, and essentially became Babylonian. Even the Assyrians recognized the culture and religious significance of the land and its principal cities, despite the fact that several of their kings often caused havoc there. Whether in good times or bad, Babylon was, at least metaphorically, the city at the center of the civilized world. As Mesopotamia was becoming increasingly Hellenized during the era of the Macedonian Seleucid dynasty, Berossus compiled a history of Babylon and Babylonia in Greek called Babylonieka. The original work is lost to us, but excerpts and summaries of it have been preserved in the writings of others, one of them being Eusebius of Caesarea 
who gives us a synopsis of a tale about Nebuchadnezzar II from Berossus's writings. Nebuchadnezzar, having mounted to the roof of his palace, was seized with a divine afflatus and broke into speech as follows. I, Nebuchadnezzar, foretell to you, O Babylonians, the calamity which is about to fall upon you, which Bel, my forefather, and Queen Beltis are alike unable to persuade the fates to avert. A Persian mule will come, assisted by your gods, and will bring slavery upon you with his accomplice, Amid, the pride of the Assyrians. We don't know why Berossus included this likely apocryphal tale in his history of Babylonia, but he must have sensed that Babylon's best days were behind it, and that the city would never again reach the greatness and glory of bygone years. Berossus was writing his history of Babylonia shortly after nearly two centuries of Achaemenid Persian rule, in which, far from being the center of the world, Babylon was just one city among many, within an empire whose main seat of power was to the east in Iran. Its kings did not speak Akkadian, nor did they eventually adopt Babylon's gods as their own. And while they may have integrated many of the artistic styles and motifs found on the walls of the great palaces of Nebuchadnezzar into their own architectural wonders, these two were also combined with Elamite, Egyptian, Greek, and other elements to create something new and distinctly Persian. Now, a new tide had arrived in Babylonia, and with it, a Hellenic order that itself had its own language, customs, and art. Though these new conquerors, mostly Macedonians and Greeks, were different than the Persians before them, they too didn't adopt the culture and religion of the lands they had recently acquired, but gradually supplanted them with their own. Many believe that language is necessary to preserve a culture for future generations. Without it, the old ways are unable to effectively be passed down to new generations. By the time of the Neo-Babylonian kings, Aramaic had already become the most widely spoken language in the ancient Near East. A few centuries later, when Berossus was writing his history of Babylon, most languages were rapidly being replaced with Greek, and it must have been quite apparent to him that the Akkadian language, even for record-keeping, would eventually cease to be used at all. And when this happened, it would be the death of the old Babylonian dialect, culture, and religion. Berossus ended up being right, for the last known Akkadian document, an astronomical text, dates to around 100 AD. After that, use of the Akkadian language basically disappeared, and it would not be until about 1700 to 1800 years later that Assyriologists and scholars of ancient linguistics would start to be able to decipher, read, and comprehend it again. Mention of the name Babylon still captures our imagination today, and the legacy of the Babylonians is with us in the form of their contributions to literature, mathematics, astronomy, art, music, early medicine, concept of time, philosophy, and religion 
just to name a few. So, this is the history, a concise history, of the ancient city of Babylon and the land of Babylonia that revolved around it. The history of ancient Babylonia and Mesopotamia is one of the most exciting periods in our shared past, and I hope that this program has encouraged you to learn even more about this truly remarkable region and its people. There will be a lot more on the history of the ancient world coming up, so please stay tuned, and if you haven't already, subscribe. Thanks so much for watching, I really appreciate it. I'd also really like to thank Grandkeck69, Yap de Graf, Pasta Frola, Michael Lewis, Daniel Allen, WenxTV, Robert Morgan, Frank, Tim Lane, Sebastian Hurtado Correa, Michael Trudell, Leader Titan, Micah G, John Scarberry, Andrew Bomer, Monty Grimes, Franz Robbins, Brendan Redman, Faridun Dadachanji, Jimmy Daruwala, Anahita Debu, Gulistan Debu, Sher Kam, Farhad Kama, and all of the channel's patrons on Patreon for helping to support this and all future content. Check out the benefits to being a Patreon member, and if you'd like to join, feel free to click the link in the video description. You can also follow History with Sai on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as listen to special audio programs on the History with Sai podcast. Thanks again, and stay safe.